can't really tell you how I care. Well, I presume at the very least that you care something about what you sing every night. Are you... How can I answer that if you got the nerve to ask me? I mean, you've got a lot of nerve asking me a question like that. Did you ask the Beatles that? Do I... Or Mr. Eve of Destruction? Yeah, just Barry McGuire that? No, I have to ask because you have the nerve to question whether I can... No, I'm not questioning you because I don't expect any answers from you. Maybe Victor Mature. He looks like Victor Mature. No, more like Elsa Lanchester, man, with a North Mexican kind of thing. It was very protesty, man. It was very, very protesty. Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only got one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined by returning guest Sasha Godman to discuss Kate Blanchett's Oscar-nominated performance in the 2007 film I'm Not There. Sasha, good to have you back on the show. Yeah, it's wonderful to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh... You heard her on our episode of Animal Kingdom, uh, one of my first few episodes that I did. A great episode, an episode that went very long. I'm guessing this one's also probably going to go very long. Uh, you, the listener, will know at this point because you can see the timestamp. But for now, who's to say how long this will go? Uh, we, will, we will find out. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, great to have you back on. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you picked this movie to be your return. Yeah, I um, I totally leapt at this opportunity because um, I think my earliest memories of music were listening to Bob Dylan's um, <clears throat> three-disc compilation masterpieces um, on really long road trips when I was young. And I didn't even know that it was Bob Dylan. So I was raised on him when I didn't even know <laughs> who he was. And I kind of think that that's like, you know, perf- perfect for this episode you know, the fascination with this man, this enigma that we might not know much about. And it's not only a chance to discuss the man's music and his, you know, storytelling, but we get to chat about, you know, the chameleon actress herself, that of Kate Blanchett, who just disappears into the role. It's always, yeah, it's always a joyous day when music and film's finest intersect. So this is going to be, this is going to be the goods. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't. I wasn't ever really raised on Bob Dylan. I'm, I'm no. I know. I listened to some of his music in uh, my childhood. I know. I heard some of his songs. There were some that got more play. Like my mom really likes uh, "Shelter from the Storm," uh, is one of her favorite songs, and so I really like that song. Um, uh, but I mean, I, I've always known who Bob Dylan was, even if I didn't have as much of a familiarity with his music, and like his presence as a pop culture figure is you know kind of undeniable uh even like there's so many bob dylan parodies everyone can do a really bad bob dylan impression i won't do mine but i have a bad bob dylan impression uh it's very bad i won't do, I won't do one either yeah but like everyone is aware of bob dylan in some way or another and i think that's that's what makes this movie among other things so fascinating is that everyone has this perception of who bob dylan is who he was what he stood for and this movie is all about how like no you don't you don't know who he is what he stood for anything like that like there is no bob dylan really kind of who's to say i don't know if the movie necessarily even has a point because the movie is like there's a bunch of different things that bob dylan could have been might have been might have stood for might not have stood for and 
the only person who knows is Bob Dylan. And the movie has a real conversation with what, like, I mean, Todd Haynes has done this a lot. Uh, we'll, we'll get into Todd Haynes, but like, he has a lot of very interesting approaches to ha- what our relationship as an audience is with these big pop culture figures and what their life means relative to what our perception of them is. Uh, and I just think that's a really fascinating thing that this movie does to Bob Dylan and his icon. And I, I'm excited to get into it. Uh, but let me br- just break down the movie as a whole. We are talking about I'm Not There from 2007, directed by Todd Haynes, written by Todd Haynes and Oren Moverman, starring Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Marcus Carl Franklin, Richard Gere, Heath Ledger, Ben Wishaw, Charlotte Gainsbourg, David Cross, Bruce Greenwood, Julianne Moore, and Michelle Williams. Uh, also, you know, uh, narrated by Chris Christopherson. There's a bunch of other people that show up here and there. Uh, but those are like the main cast members. It, it uh, had its world premiere September 3rd, 2007 at the Venice Film Festival. Also played Toronto Film Festival, New York Film Festival. A bunch of, like this was a big in the festival, festival circuit of 2007. Had its premiere in the US on December 7th of that same year. So that is the movie we're talking about. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people in there that I have a lot to say about. But let's start with the person that got the nomination, Kate Blanchett playing one of the six Bob Dylans, uh, hers is Jude Quinn. Uh, what, are your, what are your initial thoughts on the performance she gives here, just about her presence in this movie? Yeah, well, I mean, Chameleon's a bit of a, uh, bit of a cliche, but she totally disappears into the role. I think whether she's um, wearing a pair of Ray-Bans or not, she's just, um, it's kind of tricky and it's almost, not irresponsible, but she almost teeters the line of like a typical, um, like traditional biopic, you know, our idea of like what Bob Dylan is, but it is, it's transformative. Um, I think it blew everybody away. I mean, I don't know. I saw this film when it came out in 2007. So it was just, it was unlike anything I think anybody was expecting, um, even though there was a lot of hype before we saw it. It wasn't until, um, yeah, I think we briefly see her at the beginning of the film. There's an autopsy, but um, when there's a heartbeat in the, I think right in the centre of the film, uh, when Bob's playing at like the Newport uh, Folk and Rock Festival, it's just, yeah, where does Kate, (laughs) where does Kate stop and where does Robert Zimmerman begin? The lines are just, yeah, completely blurred. Yeah, I had forgotten how long it takes to get back to her because she is in that opening little, uh, I guess, like a, what, what would you even call that? It's, it's not really even movie at that point. It's like the intro. It's here's this crash. Jude cra- has a motorcycle crash and dies. And we know that's going to happen in this section. And that has a lot of really interesting implications about what the movie's saying about Bob Dylan and his career. And he did have a motorcycle crash in 1966 and is sort of mimicking that, except killing him in that uh, accident and it introduces us to the other five Bob Dylans really quick and then more movie happens and then it's not until like 45 minutes in that Kate even shows up again she's just not in the first almost hour of the movie and then there's like a whole like 20 minute section that's almost exclusively on her uh, just following her arc which I had forgotten I had remembered that like it was more intercut between everyone more like um, another Ben Wishaw movie, Cloud Atlas, which, you know, cuts between all the stories pretty much 
throughout. There's not like like the first section of this movie is mostly just the Woody Guthrie and Arthur Rimbaud, and then there's a little bit that's uh, Jack Rollins and Heath Ledger's character. I was doing so well with remembering the character name. Robbie, that's it, Robbie Clark. And then it's Jude and a little bit of Billy the Kid, and then it's just sort of all of them at the end. Uh, and well, like it, it does come, well, but yeah. I think, yeah, at the beginning, whatever you may call that segment, it's it's artistic. I think, yeah, how, how else do you start a, a film by Todd Haynes about Bob Dylan where um, all of the uh, variations of him are described? It's like uh, a a poet, a prophet, an outlaw, a fake, I think is what's used to describe Jude Quinn. No, I think because, a fake, the fake um, is uh, Woody yeah. Guthrie. The, the fake? fake? Is, oh, yeah, because okay. he's, you know, taking the Woody Guthrie name and making that his own. And he's writing about the 20s when it's the 50s. It might be the more to them. Yeah, Jude doesn't get an indicator in dialogue, but like in the press release, they added Martyr of Rock and Roll, and that's Jude. Um, right. Which, that's a, I, I don't know, calling Jude this martyr. I, I love that, uh, you know, that sort of descriptor that he gives to this period of Dylan's career, because the whole period that Jude represents is when uh, Dylan went electric, basically, where he had this tour in 1965. With, do you know who the backing band for that tour went on to become? I should, and it's, yeah, it's embarrassing that I don't. <laughs> uh, they, they, they were uh, the band, uh, which I, I didn't know that wow. until, yeah. Um, but, you know, he, he has this electric backing band and, you know, people hated it. There's the, the very famous point where someone in the audience shouts out Judas and he just mm-hmm. you know, sort of very slyly comes up to the microphone and says, I don't believe you. And it's, you know, the way that this movie captures that is also great. They just sort of fully recreate that and then it goes on from there. But uh, you know, that's the, the point that Jude, you know, Judas, Jude, very on the nose, but it, it works. That's the point that Kate represents in his career that he's taking another step in his career and people, you know, really reacted negatively to it. And in this, you know, fiction story version, he dies right afterwards. And that is the last moment of his career. And we don't see what the ramifications and the implications of that has on his legacy. But, you know, we can sort of figure that out ourselves. Like, what if Bob Dylan had died in the motorcycle crash? And like, that was the last point in his career that we had. What would we think of when we think about Bob Dylan. There's a lot of things that the movie poses and just sort of leaves up for us to answer on our own, I guess. Uh, And I think so much of what makes that work in that section is Kate. Like, it, it is just a pure Kate Blanchett is going for it role. And she, I, this is, I think, maybe my favorite performance of hers. And that's saying something. <laughs> it really is. Like, I was thinking about that yeah, this morning. Yeah. Like, she has so many great performances in her entire career. And it's, it's tough to... will continue to do so. Yes. Oh, absolutely. She's one of <laughs> the most consistent actresses of her generation. But just, like, mm. out of everything she's done, I think this is maybe 
my favorite. And I, I don't know. I, I just really like what she's doing here. I think it's a really, it's, I mean, for one, it's a complete transformation. If I watched this without knowing it was her, I wouldn't be able to figure out that it was her. There's nothing about this that screams Kate Blanchett. And she's not doing a, a Bob Dylan imitation. She's doing an affectation. She's definitely doing a voice, but she's not, she doesn't sound anything like herself and she doesn't really sound like Bob Dylan either. So that already, you know, is another layer that you have to sort of peel back and just, I don't know, the synthetic nature of it, I think really plays to this, to the advantages of what she's trying to say about Bob Dylan and his public facing persona and his, you know, interpersonal persona with the people that he interacted with when he wasn't, you know, being filmed and or being presented to an audience. I don't know. It's just, she's so good. She's so good here. Completely. I mean, even for me, it's even when she's not speaking, it's just, she, she acts without speaking. She's so, the, the wild hair, I mean, a lot to do with like makeup and hair, but she's so thin. She's, you know, wafy, the chain smoking, the breezy. I mean, you can just see it in her eyes or whether she's wearing the Ray-Bans. It's just, we never truly know the man and we never truly will. I don't think anybody else could have played this role. Man, woman, non-binary. Yeah, there was, um, I'm, it's just on the Wikipedia, but there's a quote from an, uh, a review from uh, Anthony DeCurtis uh, for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, he says, uh, her performance is a wonder and not simply because as Jude Quinn, she inhabits the twitchy amphetamine fired Dylan of 1965 to 66 with unnerving accuracy. Casting a woman in this role reveals a dimension to the acerbic Dylan of this era that has rarely been noted. Blanchett's translucent skin, delicate fingers, slight build, and pleading eyes all suggest the previously invisible vulnerability and fear that fueled uh, Dylan's lacerating anger. It is hard to imagine that any male actor, or any less gifted female actor for that matter, could have lent such rich texture to the role. Like, that's exactly what you're getting at there. Like, no one could have pulled the very specific level of, like, he's behind several you know, layers of irony and, you know, like he puts up defenses against the people in his life. He always has something witty that doesn't quite answer the question that he's being asked, but it throws it back to them. Like, I don't think... I think, yeah, exactly right. I think watching, sorry, I think, yeah, watching the film in one of the press conferences, I think I made a note of every question he answers with a question. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, he totally pivots everything. And it's just whether it is to keep the enigma or not, or just he seems disinterested. Why are people interested in him? And yeah, going back to, um, we all know everyone, as you said, like knows who Bob Dylan is, even if you're not familiar with his music, um, you know, what he looks like, his hair, especially um, the glasses. And it would, so, it would be so easy for um, anyone to play him as a caricature. And I think, uh, don't quote me, and I forget if it was like 2006 or 2008, but um, Hayden Christensen had a small role as like a Bob Dylan uh, pseudo character, I think in Factory Girl, the Edie Sedgwick film. That would, I would believe and that. And I think he, um, you haven't seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, you're not, yeah, you're not, um, yeah, that, don't blame me. Is that the one with <laughs> Guy Pierce? is Warhol in that? 
I'm pretty certain, yeah, I think I've only watched it once for a reason. Um, yeah. You know, pop culture interest as a teenager, but um, that's as far as the buck goes. And, yeah, from memory, Hayden Christensen, yeah, plays like a, a caricature of Bob yeah. Dylan. The potential's there because he's a tall, you know, gangly kind of bloke, but it is just one-dimensional. Yeah. You could go so much further. And it's Kate funny, did. Yeah. It's funny that you say tall because according to the IMDb trivia on this movie, uh, all of the adult actors in this movie that play one of the Bob Dylans are all taller than the actual Bob Dylan. Which, you know, I don't know. I just thought, like, I wouldn't have mentioned that otherwise it wasn't really that interesting of a factoid, but it came up. Why, yeah, uh, who's and I wouldn't, I wouldn't know because the only time I've seen Bob Dylan perform and I didn't go out of my way, I was, I was working in a theatre um, just because I heard terrible things about him as a live performer and he was well into his 70s when this happened. That sounds about um, right, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it, it was fine, but he was sitting down and the lighting was deliberate, you know, it was very dark, so I wouldn't have gauged how tall he was at all. But, yeah, for some reason in Factory Girl, he was, yeah, Hayden Christensen, I think, is well-known, is known for his height. Yeah. So I think Kate Blanchett, yeah, it didn't matter that it was a smaller stature, yeah. waif I, figure. I think it works. Like, there's a, there's a point in the movie where, oh, yeah. where some, like... They're, they're at the hotel where they're staying in London and this like this bus boy comes into the room and he starts like he he, pick, he pulls out a knife and is like he wants to stab Jude because he betrayed them all or whatever and like everyone I mean Blanchard is on like the far opposite side of the room and there's other people that are more in the foreground so like even that like you know serves to heighten the the like it makes Jude look so small in the frame of that shot and I, I just for whatever reason at that point I noticed how small she looks as Jude and I think like that's that's kind of intentional like Jude is presented as like kind of a small man you know personality wise like he is insecure and cynical and mean he's very mean to Michelle Williams uh, uh, her, oh, he's a bastard yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh I don't know. I, I do like uh, just thinking of the other people that he interacts with, uh, uh, Jude. The, I, I like the, the few scenes that he has with Allen Ginsberg, played by David Cross, who I'd completely forgotten was in this movie. No, I, I was hoping you would mention that. That is my absolute favorite. Just what an entry. You know, I don't know what the I'm not a car enthusiast, but whatever it is that, you know, is that, is that that poet? And he just, whatever that car is that he rocks up in, and it's just. It's so tiny and, and they're so big yeah. on it and Ginsburg with just the giant hair and beard and like I don't know just you're right that is a very funny entrance um I think that's the happiest as well or like the most elated that we see Kate yeah um she's where well Kate you know Jude it's interconnected um even though she's wearing the sunglasses you can just see how much she's beaming yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, she's speaking, I guess she's speaking, you know, we know that, yeah, Bob Dylan or whomever might be, might suffer from a bit of a complex. Um, you can hear it in the writing. So being able to interact with someone like Ginsburg, it's like, did, I'm, I'm talking with an, with an equal here. Everyone else is like my little worker bees, you know, they're telling me to do this, do that. And here comes Ginsburg. And of course, like later, they're yelling at a 
um, a statue of Jesus. Yeah, on, on the cross, like a, a crucifix yeah, yeah. statue. Um, How does it feel? Yeah, and then she goes, play your old stuff, which I yeah, think yeah, yeah. Um, But there's a point in that scene with Ginsburg where he's, like, either he says something or his partner says something, and Jude just goes, what do you even mean by that, man? But, like, she's so excited. Like, you're right. It is, she is a very joyous in that scene. Like, she's just happy to be interacting with someone that gets her, him. I, I, like, pronouns for the character versus the actor, interchangeable. We're still talking about Jude, Kate, same difference in this. Um, Well, that's the whole, that just goes back to, I mean, the whole movie. How many different characters do we refer to jack robbie um <laughs> jude uh woody guthrie it's just Billy the kid the names are like completely that. changing yeah and Billy they're the all they're all in some way a, a different facet of bob dylan which is great um oh there there's a point uh where when they do recreate the judas scene uh and like it's kind of a similar delivery to the actual footage of Dylan saying the, I don't believe you or whatever. But like the way that Kate delivers it feels almost like seductive. Like this performance is weirdly charged with a level of like, you know, she's playing to these people that are interviewing her in the same way that like she's playing to us as the audience, trying to get us to like, you know, he's, he's a, he's an asshole, his character, but she's still trying to get us to be like, yeah, he's an asshole, but I can see why people are so drawn to him. I can see, like, she's drawing us in. She's trying to make us feel, like, comforted by this very, like, soft delivery. I don't know. Just There's, there's a few points where she looks right at the camera, and it's like, okay, Kate Blanchett, I... Uh, or, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. A lot, Maybe of us, a lot of us are attra- a lot of us. Sorry, a lot of us are attracted to assholes. So yeah, I think when there's true. a lot of talent, <laughs> a lot of talent to back it up. Um, yeah, it's undeniable. Yeah, uh, and just more stuff about body language. I'm just sort of jumping around in my notes in the same way that the movie kind of jumps around. This is going to be a very jump around sort of uh, conversation. I can tell. Uh, but there's that the like the main interview sequence after she plays the concert where she goes electric, which I had forgotten also. The way they intro that scene is it's like a very sort of like montage of Jude is coming onto the stage and all these people are cheering for him and the band is getting set up and then they turn around and instead of instruments, they like fire machine guns right at the, at the audience. And I, it's, a, it's a pretty simple visual metaphor of like they're killing their fans by by making this change to the career that he's had up until this point. But I, I liked that. But then uh, when they go to the interview sequence, and a lot of this is ripped just from actual, like a lot of the lines he has are ripped from actual interviews and uh, press conferences that Dylan actually did in this time. But just the body language of like, he's hunched over a little bit and he's avoiding eye contact with anyone that's asking him things. And he's just, I, I don't know, he, like he's mo- much more focused on getting this cigarette lit from some woman in the audience that has a lighter. And then he's much more focused on smoking the cigarette than answering anyone's questions. Um, Just, you know, he doesn't want to be there and he's treating it like a farce. And, you know, Kate, Kate makes that work because Kate shows in just the way, just the slight way that he's hunched over and the way she moves her head, a very head Bobby performance um, that she doesn't want, like 
she is doing such a good job of showing that he doesn't want to be there without, you know, sighing and doing the big over-the-top, like, I'm bored ticks that you could do. It's a very subtle boredom. Yeah, well, that's what I was going off before. I think that um, it's it's acting without speaking. And that's what you can see in this scene exactly why she got the nomination. It's not a um, cliched performance. And, yeah, she she's so disinterested. But I just think you got to remember that Dylan, we weren't around in the 60s, but you got to remember that Dylan was like 26 or 25 here. Oh, yeah. To have that sort of name and to be crucified for, I mean... The man can do what he wants, but you were playing at a folk and jazz festival and you without an electric guitar. What do you expect? So you have a yeah. press conference and as I said before, like your answer, you, all these questions being barked at you and you're answering. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the questions, but predominantly he's answering questions with further questions. And I think one of the main ones is like, uh, something about protesting and he's just well all I do is protest yeah yeah the and question was like are you done writing protest songs and uh, he goes who who said that and the guy yeah, exactly. says, well, no one said that I just read that somewhere that you said that you stopped doing protest songs and he you know just further avoids the question he's avoiding confrontation but being confrontational to avoid confrontation which is uh it, it's a good understanding of this, you know, this side of Dylan as the the anti-interview subject, I guess. Uh, and a lot of that is pulled from uh, the D.A. Pennebaker documentaries that followed these tours, uh, 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 Don't Look Back and Eat the Document, which Eat the Document is weird. It wasn't ever released because Dylan ended up being the one that actually edited it. And then when he submitted the final version that he cut, the studio was like, no one's going to watch this. You made it incomprehensible. And so there's like bootlegs that have been around. There's one up on YouTube or Vimeo or something, which is where I watched it. But like he, he rendered it unwatchable, basically, which adds to the, to the Bob Dylan mythos of like, he's doing that in a presentation of his own self he's making it incomprehensible and illogical and jumpy and all over the place and i, I think it's all in the name i think it's all in the name i mean don't quote me but i'm 98 percent sure i was a bit of a yeah bob dylan fiend um since i was young in like 2000 2007 i was in high school like spotify wasn't around youtube was barely um yeah. accessible by um by broadband and you heard about this film, I'm Not There. And of course, they're saying it's a Bob Dylan song. I'm going, it is not a Bob Dylan song. I don't have it on vinyl. I don't have it on cassette. I don't have it on CD. And everyone's going, yeah, well, it hasn't been released. And I'm yeah. just, what sort? <laughs> I was just, yeah, all right. So it's a song that's been vaulted away for X amount of years. Okay, only someone like Bob Dylan is capable of this. And yeah. it was so true, you know. And, and you can call people out on their bluff. You know, there are certain people, cinephiles, music lovers, um, whomever, who, you know, you ask them about something. And instead of being honest, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah I've heard of that or I've seen that. And so you'd call them out, you know, oh, I'm not there. Like it's, you know, taken from that Bob Dylan song. They could have chosen, you know, Simple Twist of Fate, um, Ballad of a Thin Man. 
yeah, I'm not there. I love that song. I'm like, you're yeah. talking shit, mate. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like publicly released until I think it's on the soundtrack for this movie. Yeah. Literally, literally none of us heard it. I was like, uh-uh. And I think that's like the perfect deep cut title to pull for the movie. Like I'm not there is for as much as it can get hard to remember which one is this one and which one is the Joaquin Phoenix documentary, I'm still here. Uh, I always, like, even in doing preparation for this episode, I still have to check myself, like, I'm not there is the movie I'm talking about, because they're very similar titles. Uh, but, like, it, I mean, it's kind of what the whole movie's thesis is. He's not there. It's, like, that's it's what the, the yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. It's absolutely perfect. It is. Um, Todd Haynes, well done. Todd Haynes, well done indeed. Like, you can say <laughs> that about every Todd Haynes movie, but Todd Haynes, well done. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, the, she has this sort of monologue at the end of the movie where she's talking about, uh, you know, political music and folk music and Jude's not a folk singer and, like, all this stuff that sort of, like, encapsulates all of the different, you know, clashing ideologies and lacks of ideology and personalities and everything, not just in Jude, but in all of the Bobs. And she's just, you know, sitting in the back of the car, uh, sort of talking at nobody. And then she turns and looks right at the camera and smiles. Uh, but just, I, I think that's, that's a really strong scene. Like th- every scene is a strong scene from her. This is, it's a powerhouse performance that steals the movie away from anything else. Like I, it is completely understandable why walking away from this movie she's the name that everyone was drawn to because it's just that i you know impossible to describe really like we've been talking for 30 minutes but like we haven't even scratched at the surface of everything she's doing yeah. here uh and no t- and no time is wasted i mean i've seen the film several times over the last 15 years and you could you know admit that in some of the other segments, even with, you know, Heath Ledger and Christian Bale is probably my least favourite. I don't know if it's to do with religion, which isn't my most captivating of subjects. But um, with Kate, there is not a second wasted, even in probably my most frustrating part with the Edie Sedgwick, uh, Coco Rivington character, which could have, I feel, been completely cut out of the film. It's pretty irrelevant. yeah, she's electric. It's, yeah. yeah, I mean, she is electric. That's the point of the character. Yeah. Um, the other sort of featured cast member in this section that we didn't talk about that I think uh, she has really good bad chemistry with, like there's, you know, when you talk about chemistry between actors, everyone's usually talking about like either friendship or romance or sexual chemistry. But like to have a mm-hmm. good, you know, dissident chemistry with someone is really yeah. it can be really hard to pull off and she has really good you know mo- malicious chemistry with bruce greenwood in this movie oh absolutely uh, and, Keenan, and bruce yeah. and bruce, and of course bruce is in a dual role so it's just yes. yeah hats off to him it's just yeah he never he never raises his voice whereas you know, Bob, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, Jude, Kate, the... They're all <laughs> the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Constantly, um, you know, keeps 
they're cool throughout, you know, pretty, remains pretty, um, uh, yeah. Laid uh, back, just like. Yeah, I wanted to find a better word than laid back, but yeah, it's like pretty. Unaffected by his constant. Extremely unaffected. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's not quite the meme of the screaming lady and the cat sitting at the table, but it's kind of that. It's kind mm. of that. Um, but like, I, I don't know. I, I had forgotten how good he was in this movie uh, as Keenan Jones and then also as Pat Garrett. But like in the sequences where he is Mr. Jones, you know, from the song and they, they, uh, they do that song and there's a whole sequence of him that I, I thought was really cool. Yes, it's, it's, it's so good. And uh, do you know who did the singing for Kate? It, it, uh, she didn't do her own singing. Uh, not off the top of my head, no. It was uh, Stephen Malcolmus from Pavement. Okay. Uh, I don't know anything about the band, but I know that name for whatever reason. Uh, but, you know, she's... I, I like that, like, she's not singing, but she's the one, you know, lip-syncing and sitting at this piano. And it, it does feel kind of malicious from her. Like, she... Completely. She doesn't like this. It's like almost like a Disney villain song sequence just the look on her face is you know so like happily mean as she's saying all this stuff about mr jones and he's you know getting locked up in a circus cage and all the things that are happening to him in this sequence i i really like that sequence and i think yeah you know, I mean, yeah of the thin man was probably one of my favorite songs because we all know that we don't listen to bob dylan because of his voice yeah um <laughs> some of us might do but um, yeah, I think lyrically, like Ballad of a Thin Man, again, it was one of the tracks that was on that um, compilation album that I listened to when I was a youngster. And there's this line that has always stayed with me because, I mean, where the hell does he get the inspiration from? And I think it's, yeah, when he's just before he's like passing the microphone to Bruce in the cage, and it's like, you have many contacts among the lumberjacks who check your facts when someone attacks your imagination. And that's good for a journalist. And it's just, it rolls off the tongue. It's, oh, it's such a malicious song. You're saying it's it a little bit yeah. malicious. It was a, it was a brutal, it was the most perfect song. I mean, I, um, yeah, I rewatched this after having not seen this film for several years. And I, f I forgot for the most part, apart from Ballad of a Thin Man, what was used and no other song could have been used. For yeah. That segment. They, Todd Haynes did such a good job of picking the perfect songs to fit the perfect moments. Like the whole montage uh, where he does, um, oh, what's the name of the song, uh, Johanna? Is it Visions of Johanna? Is that the name of the song? Visions of Johanna from yeah. Blonde on Blonde. Yeah. The, the way that he uses that song to be uh, Robbie and the actress he's having an affair with cutting back to his wife back home, just that's yeah. perfectly used. And... Uh, tombstone blues is it's, it's all used so well it's uh yeah i think even um you know st uh stuck in um memphis with the yeah. tombstone blues again was just yeah. what else could have introduced the film yeah yeah that's good that's a it's that's a really good intro song i mean it's all good and it doesn't it doesn't rely on like the big dylan songs like it doesn't have you know, times they are a change in, which you could absolutely see them throwing in here as like, you know, 
cliche. Or Mr. Like, or yeah, or it doesn't have like a Rolling Stone. It doesn't have Rolling all of these. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Rolling Stones, that was another little throwaway line where uh, they're at the party Brian. and Brian Jones comes up and like yeah. starts talking to uh, Jude and someone's like, oh, who's that? And Jude introduces him <laughs> as uh, Brian Jones from that cover band. Which, from that groovy cover band who's yeah. just stone faced. Yeah. But it's oh. <laughs> Yeah. She she is so good at playing him as a charismatic asshole, I think is what it boils down to, is that she's she's doing such a good job of with with very little, you know, actual acting that she's doing, she sells that this is a deeply, deeply insecure man who is putting on several different, you know, false projections and personalities to get people to respect him and hate him and admire him and, you know, reject him. And all like, it's all intentional on Jude's behalf. He wants all of these reactions from these different sets of people. And I don't know, she, she does that so well with so little. It's, it's a perfect, like, yeah, it's a perfect performance. This is one of my favorite performances of, I mean, it's my favorite of her career. It's one of my favorite of the decade. Like, it, it's, it's that good. Uh, yeah, do, do you have anything else to say about her? I know that I kind of just put, set a high watermark, but do you have anything else to say about her or uh, do you want to move on and talk about the rest of the movie? No, we can segue into the rest of the film because I think that she'll come up as we compare her oh, to yeah. you know, the other actors. She absolutely will. Derry Lay, poet, prophet, outlaw, fake, star of electricity, nailed by a peeping Tom who would soon discover... A poem is like a naked person. Even the ghost was more than one person. That a song is something that walks by itself. Uh, so let's, do, do you want to just go one Bob Dylan at a time? We can just sort of go section to section and then at the end sort of wrap up with anything else uh, about the movie at large? No, no, it's fine. Let's just let it take its natural course. Yeah. Uh, uh, so who, who out of, I mean, just like out of this cast, who, who's your favorite of the other five Dylans? Let's, let's start there. Um, it's hard to say because I think that, um, you know, Mark, was it Marcus, Marcus Franklin, the yeah. young kid, he plays such an interesting role and it's only really at the beginning. Ben Wishaw is probably my close second. I mean, I really enjoy them all. It's probably Christian Bale for me that is, yeah, I'm not saying that any of them are terrible. I'm not saying yeah. that Christian Bale is terrible, but I just think that he is probably... Yeah, it's no coincidence that he is the uh, born again Christian Bob Dylan. So, yeah. yeah, I think I agree. Like, I think uh, Woody Guthrie and Arthur Rimbaud are probably up there for me as my other favorites. Um, I remember the first time I watched this, I watched this with a bunch of friends, including someone who was like very into Bob Dylan. Like, like he doesn't listen to much other music aside from Bob Dylan, like that level of being very into Bob Dylan. 
Um, but like, so we were watching this all as friends. And I remember when I watched this then that like Marcus Carl Franklin was like the standout aside from Kate Blanchett. Like I really was, you know, you don't see that many child actors with this level of, you know, he's very self-assured. He's very charismatic. You know, he, he wins over these two other guys on the train in an instant, just, you know, he, he's a little bit of, of a fast talker, but like, he's charming. He's, he's, a, he's a charismatic kid. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to pull that off as a child actor. And I think he did a really good job. Uh, and he, he's playing, quote unquote, Woody Guthrie. Um, and, and it's not a thing where like, he's playing a character named Woody Guthrie, but there's no real musician Woody Guthrie. And it's like a simulated version of that. Well, no, there is like, taking his name from the actual Woody Guthrie and sort of presenting himself as a kid living in, you know, in the same time as Woody Guthrie, even though it is, what, 1959, 69, something like that. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's much later. Um, But he, he, you know, he has the guitar case that says this machine kills fascists and he's singing these, you know, Dust Bowl, style songs uh and and then you know as his arc sort of goes on the the, one of the families that takes him in is like you're singing all these songs from the past from these other musicians you should live yes you should live in the present you should sing about what's what's happening now like what what is the world that you're living in um and you know that's the Bob Dylan thing. He, as a, as a young artist, uh, took after Woody Guthrie a lot and then sort of adapted and became his own artist and had his own voice, but, you know, still had a lot of Woody Guthrie influence in his, you know, entire career, basically. Um, yeah, I, I, thought, I thought he did a really good job. It's a, it's a performance that, you know, when people talk about this movie, because he's the one not star out of this cast he's the one that people don't bring up as much but i think he's really strong completely so he was your favorite the marcus was yeah. like your second favorite right yeah. yeah 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 it's probably tied for me i don't know ben wishaw i just thought was for someone who is pretty much in an interview room yeah he does a lot for the character and i just think he could have easily um, been a fantastic Jude Quinn. Oh yeah, uh, you know, I think yeah, just um, visually, of course. But he was not a relative unknown. But I think like two thousand and six, two thousand and seven was really the wish or kind of boom. So yeah, what did he have yeah, at this point? Just, he um, had Brideshead revisited. I think um, uh, Perfume, Story of a Murderer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's he was really not. I forgot. Really about, yeah. yeah, this is like in his first maybe 10, 15 movies. Uh, and he's, you know, had a, a much stronger career after this. He's in, like I said, Cloud Atlas. And he's the voice of Paddington. And he's in some of the James Bond movies. And he's in a lot oh, of yes, things. He's, yeah, he's yeah. also very attractive. He's a, you don't have to tell me yeah, he, he's a real cutie. Um, and in this movie, he's very attractive as uh, uh, also playing 
a real person uh, like Richard Gere is and kind of like Marcus Carl Franklin, but not really. Uh, really? But yes, uh, he, so he's Arthur Rimbaud, who is this uh, French poet. Uh, I, I don't know much about the real guy other than he was French and he was a poet and he died in his 30s of some like knee infection something. I don't know. I just sort of took a, a cursory glance at his Wikipedia. But uh, this this real guy was, you know, another influence on a lot of Dylan's sort of personal philosophies and ideologies. And in this sequence, he's being interviewed. Do they say why? Do they say what the, the setup is for this? Or he's just in this interview room? No, he's not there anymore. I'm not there. No one's there. That's true. It's just, That's I true. think at the beginning, he, I, I forget, I mean, I only watched this film recently, but I, we, we see who's interviewing him, but he pretty much just sits down. We don't see any other angle. It's just um, Arthur, uh, I think he starts to spell out his name and then they yeah. ask him to backtrack. He's going to sit down. So whether he's, you know, uh, reading out a confession because you could argue, you know, I think for a lot of people that um, had seen this film that I was trying to discuss with as a, you know, well-versed teenager at the time, they were all just, you know, what is this wanker doing? He's just yeah. saying about seven, seven rules about hiding. He's asking if he can smoke, if he can spell out his name. It's just, yeah, for, but for someone to just be, yeah, face on. He does a lot with the role, with a white background behind him, and I think maybe, yeah, with the same wiry hair that Kate does. Yeah, yeah looking right at the camera too, like perfectly framed in the mm-hmm. center, staring right at the camera. Every once in a while, like between sections, it'll just cut back to him. Uh, and then also like all of his dialogue is like paraphrased or taken word for word from different interviews and things that Bob Dylan has written. So he's just, you know, in the same way that Rimbo. uh, influenced Dylan's work and Dylan took a lot of inspiration from him in this movie. It's the other way around. This guy is just parroting back things that Bob Dylan, you know, took from him. It's, it's, you know, again, a weird conversation with where our influences come from and how much we wear our influences on our sleeves and how it goes back. And, you know, hard to talk, hard to explain. I don't think the movie, uh, you know, wants us to have a neat tidy explanation of these things it's presenting a lot of big abstract ideas about celebrity and ideology uh so yeah you know fun to talk about on a podcast a movie that gives you these big uh undefinable concepts uh yeah no he's good he's i would have liked to see more from him i think like i don't know it's a double-edged sword like you could have seen more with that character outside of that interrogation section, mm-hmm. but also it works so well because you don't see anything else. Like he, he exists just on that plane and it makes the character all the more fascinating. No, I think exactly right. I think, yeah, he's contained in this one space, whereas, you know, these other iterations of Dylan are out living in the real world or yeah, not so real world. No, I think it works perfectly. Yeah. Um, I, I, and like, there's other thing. Uh, excuse me. I'm trying to formulate this thought. Uh, mm. I don't know, because this wasn't a thing that I had really 
consciously thought about until just now I'm putting it together. But like you have in this movie, this guy, Arthur Rimbaud, who died young. You have Richard Gere as Billy the Kid, who in real life died young. But in this version, it's he dodged the bullet and he lived and he's now this old man. You have uh, uh, Heath Ledger playing a character that is described as like the next James Dean. And um, like, and with all this stuff, you're talking about Bob Dylan, a man that, you know, at this point when the movie's being made, has had a long career and uh, has, you know, changed more in his career and like has tried a bunch of different things musically, artistically, that none of these people that the movie's sort of making allusion to really got mm. a chance to do. And mm. and the movie, you know, it it does that too. Jude dies young. Jude is like in his 20s, his mid-20s when he gets in the motorcycle accident and dies. And it gets back to what I was saying earlier. Like this is the movie's making you think about what would the legacy be of Bob Dylan if he had died at this point? And what, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, again, having a hard time describing what I'm trying to say. But, you know, the movie functions in this weird liminal space of icon versus like actual productive output versus you know the mix of both as celebrity and as content again i know what you're trying to say i think it's an extremely valid point not trying to help you out or speak over you no i think it's an extremely valid point and say if dylan had passed away in a motorcycle accident in 66 he would have been a martyr like Jude was described in the opening sequence. I think as well um, in the film, Jude, Jude brushed shoulders with, you know, Brian Jones, Edie, Alan, yeah. the Beatles as well. So, you know, when did the Beatles split up? 1970? Yeah. yeah. Or 69. So uh, that was 52 years ago, who are the most famous band in the world that everyone knows that even if they don't listen to their music? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and you have that as well, again, in the movie. Jack Rollins. Yeah. Jack Rollins. Um, in a, in a, I found that section the most similar to Velvet Goldmine because that has this thing that, you know, more or less has a real life analog. The speech that he gives when he accepts this award that Jack accepts, uh, he gives the speech where he's talking about, you know, Cuba and race and ideology. There's no left wing, right wing. There's only up and down and all this stuff. And he says uh, that man that killed, like he's giving the speech in like 1963, 1964. He says that man that killed Kennedy, I saw part of myself in him. Uh, And that's uh, that's a real thing that Bob Dylan said accepting an award he said i saw a part of myself in uh i almost said john wayne gacy what's that guy's name lee, lee harvey lee oswald another i was also thinking john wilkes booth you know a lot of three word named bad people um yeah. but then like as the movie puts it this kills his career and he basically you know stops producing music goes away for a while and then becomes this born-again Christian preacher. And the movie does, uh, uh, Velvet Goldmine does that a bit with 
it's faux David Bowie character. He has a staged assassination at a, a concert to kill off the faux Ziggy Stardust personality. And in the movie's fiction, that kills his career and he's gone. He's just completely gone away from public limelight for the next 10 years and maybe reemerges as this other pop star, who's to say. Uh, but, you know, that's another thing, like you said, with the Beatles. He's not dead, but his career stops at a very distinct point and that's all you have. That's all the creative output you have from this guy. And it changes entirely the perception that we have of him. We, the real Bob Dylan has continued to make music. He has the, you know, 20 minute song he put out a couple years ago about JFK or whatever that was. Uh, I, haven't <laughs> I haven't either. Um, but like, we have so much more Bob Dylan in this real timeline we live in than in any of the story arcs in I'm Not There. And how do we perceive our Bob Dylan versus their Bob Dylans? The movie doesn't say. The movie leaves that up to us. And yeah, the Christian Bale stuff, it's, it's not bad. He's not, he's not bad it's, either, but it's just, it's the no. least, it is the least interesting. Uh, it's, when it, um, I think, yeah, I think when it, sorry, I think when it went back to him at some point, because it really dominates um, the beginning of the film, and I think there was a few parts, maybe in the last 20 minutes or half an hour, that it actually diverted back to him, and I'm going, mate, like, no, please, I thought we ended on this, it was, you know, we're, we're tying up what little loose ends there are to tie up, Yeah. and it was kind of, that was probably the only time I got frustrated with the film, I'm just... I'm really not interested. I think we, you know, interviewed one of his girl, like one of his ex-girlfriends, and I'm just, this doesn't really tell me a lot about Dylan. I don't know much about Dylan, and I don't really, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter if I walk away from this knowing more, but I don't think it was, yeah, I'm not articulating this very well, but I would have yeah. liked more time with Billy. I would have liked more time with Billy the Kid. I, I would have liked yeah. more time with Robbie and his wife. Yeah, it was probably just the most frustrating part of the film for me was yeah, yeah. this fixation on um, uh, Jack Rowland, I think his, yeah. his name was. Uh, I mean, I'm always here for more Julianne Moore, I guess I'll say that. Uh, she plays a, Joan, she's like a Joan Baez type stand-in that had worked with him at some point in his career. And she's more interesting in those sections than Christian Bale. Uh and like th this whole section is told as like a documentary about here's what happened to Jack Rollins all these years later. Now he's a preacher at this church in Georgia or wherever he's living. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, it works on the level of it being like a sort of mock-up of bad where are they now documentaries, I guess, because it's just like, hey, remember Jack Rollins? now he's this preacher but it doesn't really give us anything more and that also you know ties into what the movie's saying is that like if he went away and did this like would we care enough to want to watch this whole documentary i certainly wouldn't it's an interesting yeah. little tidbit of like hey remember this old folk singer now he's a, a, a pastor or whatever but that's all you care about about it about that part of the story and i think if he's not in the least, if his section doesn't take up the least amount of the movie, it feels like it. Even it, like he might be in. 100%. 100%. There's 
probably more of him than there is of Ben Wishaw, but it feels like there's more Ben Wishaw because I was more invested in him, I guess. Uh, yeah. The, the most interesting thing that comes out of the Christian Bale storyline is the Heath Ledger storyline, who is the most yeah. tangential Bob Dylan part because he's playing an actor that played Jack Rollins in a movie in the 60s is his sort of section. But it's also also the closest, you know, I think that we get into the inside of his actual personal life because it does, yeah, yeah, because it parallels his, you know, they might not have the same names, but it does parallel his doomed marriage to his wife. And we we know from the onset, which I think is, uh, I I think it's so fantastic, fantastic. It's not, (laughs) that's a morbid thing to say about a failing relationship, but the fact that we know that the relationship is doomed from the start. Anybody that's a fan of Bob Dylan knows that this marriage doesn't last, but that they compare it to the length of the Vietnam War, that yeah. when Charlotte Gainsbourg's character, it's, I think it is, I didn't, I don't think I appreciated it uh, very much when I was, you know, 15 years old, even though I'm, you know, well aware of um, Nan and, and whatnot, but watching it as an adult, it was, it was emotional. It was, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a high, It was definitely a highlight of the film for me, and I was always, you know, looking forward for them to, for them, for the film to divert back to, back to that segment yeah. away from Christian or Christ. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And that section, like, every time it cuts back to it, it's a different, you know, point in the timeline. Like, even if you were to take all of the Heath Ledger, Charlotte Gainsbourg stuff, and just cut that out and present it as it is even that's not linear. Like it, it starts off at the end of their relationship and then it cuts to like, it ha- like the, the whole visions of Johanna montage is between here's, you know, uh, uh, Robbie's off shooting this thriller movie with this other woman that he's having an affair with. And here's Johanna, right? She's playing a character named Johanna. Is that the thing? No, Claire. It, Never mind. I, She's I playing Claire. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I but, think, um, like, oh, sorry. Oh, but just like it, it cuts from to her, you know, back at home waiting for him. And then also when they're meeting and when she's, you know, walks up and sees him on set filming A Grain of Sand, which is the movie where he plays Jack Rollins, uh, and meeting him. And it's like, even in that, it's cutting between the beginning and the end of their relationship within one montage. And then it'll be like they're meeting and then after they're, they've broken up entirely and them at lunch and their relationship is fracturing because he says women can't be poets and he's shouting at this paparazzi and I don't know. It, it's, it, it's a weird fractured timeline with them that I really appreciate because you never know when it cuts back to them at what point it's going to be. And I, I don't know. I, I yeah. thought that was cool. I think it's, yeah, probably, like, it's it's relatable for all of us. Like, even though Bob Dylan, Robbie Clark, Jude Quinn, Robert Zimmerman, whoever, um, may remain mysterious, it's like, no, he, he had, there's no doubt in our minds that he had failed relationships just like any of us. He, oh, yeah. you know, fucked up. He fucked up. He fucked around. He, um, I think as well, like, going back to, 
way earlier where we talked about how like, you know, not much of the most cliched Bob Dylan songs like featured in this. I feel like um, the beginning when they're in the diner and they go out and they're talking, I think Heath is doing a bit of a uh, narration about the summer and like the beginning of their relationship and I Want You from Blonde on Blonde starts playing, which is probably, yeah, again, like it's very cheesy. It's probably one of his softer kind of songs, but it works. It, it really does. works because that's probably, it's probably like the most optimistic part of the entire film. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's not yeah. saying much. This isn't a very optimistic <laughs> uh, But yeah, I, I don't I I don't have, I mean, all the things I want to say about the Heath Ledger stuff are not actually movie stuff. Just, you know, real life. You know, this is while he's dating Michelle Williams, who's also in the movie. And they broke up shortly after. This is the last movie that he was in that was released during his lifetime, which, uh, you know, that's also something. I mean, like, this is a show where we're talking about the Oscars. He died the day that of nominations this year like like that like later that night like the movie gets nominated in the morning for kate and then he dies a few hours later and it's 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 tragic and it's i mean there's no possible way this would have i mean it is literally impossible for this to be true but it ties back to what i was saying the movie's weird relationship with people dying young and legacy and all that like it, it's it's something that you can't ignore when watching this movie is they he they call him a james dean type and he dies a few months after the movie is put out and it's you know we would be remiss to not mention it it is it's heartbreaking and it just adds another weird layer to the movie on top of everything else yeah Sorry to bring down the mood. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah. it was inevitable. I think it was yeah. completely inevitable bringing that up. Um, yeah, it was funny when I was watching, not funny, but when I was watching I'm Not There, I think it was around the time that the Batman came out. So I was re-watching, you know, of course, the Dark Knight trilogy. And I don't recommend it to anybody watching like two back-to-back Heath Ledger films. One is enough. Yeah. Like it stings. It stings. He's, he's younger than what I am now, and I'm just like, it's... Uh, anyway, moving on. Yeah. I mean, Heath Ledger, very good in this movie. We'll... Fantastic. Better than Christian Bale. By and that far. was another weird thing. Yeah, watching The Dark Knight, again, who teams up, who has many scenes together, so yeah. I'm oh. not there. Do you know what? The other weird thing about that is that uh, apparently Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, at least auditioned for or was in heavy consideration for Jude. So that would have been the three of them in both of those movies back to back. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think she could have pulled it off in a different way than Kate. Like it would have been, it wouldn't have been anything similar to what Kate is doing, but I think she wouldn't have been a bad fit. It just would have been a different fit. And then also, and then also on the note of alternate casting, um, and also back to Heath Ledger, unfortunately. Um, someone that was almost cast as Robbie, uh, Colin Farrell. But he, he uh, couldn't do it because he was going into rehab. Uh, so Heath Ledger <laughs> took over the role. Um, and then, you know, just a few years later, uh, Colin Farrell was one of the actors that 
uh, filled in for Heath on uh, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. So just more weird behind the scenes fun facts. I mean, not, not a fun fact, but interesting thing to know. Facts for your arsenal nonetheless. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's talk about Richard Gere. We haven't really mentioned, I mean, like we've mentioned the Billy the Kid stuff, but we haven't really gotten mm-hmm. into it. It's this is definitely the 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 actually this is the most tangentially related to Bob Dylan. I, I know I said that about Robbie, but it, it, it's much more the Billy the Kid stuff. But I don't know. The first time I watched this movie, I didn't really get it. I guess like I didn't really understand. I, I mean, I I understood why because you know he was in Pat Barrett, Pat Garrett, and Billy the Kid. Uh, Bob Dylan was, and you know, there's there's stuff there, but you know. Why are we, why are we just having old man Billy the Kid be in this movie? What's the point of it? But you know, watching it a second time, I think it works a lot better than I gave it credit for the first time. Yes. Uh, and Gear is I think, good. He's solid. I think it's fantastic. I think it's what Bob Dylan, and I might be bold to say, but I think it's what Dylan might wish he, you know, became an outlaw. You know, if he survived a car crash if he survived a shootout for whatever reason if he had to go into hiding and then he i don't know disappears into society i know the name of the town it was riddle but i forget like what state in the u.s it was based in georgia yeah. um, i don't even know if they say somewhere. i don't i don't know if riddle even is a real town or if it's made up for the movie i'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's not but I, I guess it's based like somewhere in the south um just yeah. going off the, the landscape but I just think that that's maybe what he envisioned. You know, he does all of this, you know, imaginative storytelling with his lyrics that I just think that, you know, maybe that's what, maybe that's where he envisioned he'd end up as an old or an older gentleman, you know, because I, I guess like his Richard Gere is meant to be Billy in his, what, 50s, maybe late 50s, early yeah. 60s. It's just he's a world weary bloke who's advocating for these you know downtrodden um core townsfolk who are about to be obliterated by a highway and i just think that maybe yeah after being such a dickhead after being such an asshole in his you know youth where he was so famous and revered yeah yeah, he's turned around he's not such a bastard after all he's fallen off fallen out of the spotlight and yeah, I was the same as you. I think I was still captivated by it when I was young, but I definitely appreciated it a lot more. And yeah, I think it's one of Richard Gere's finest outings. Oh yeah, I think he's he does a really good job with the material, um, especially yeah. now having seen it again and you know getting more of what it's going for. And you know, there, there's some interesting, you know, uh, convergence between the forward movement of the highway that pat garrett is instituting and how the people don't like it but ultimately it's probably you know a quote-unquote positive change versus dylan going electric and the people not liking it but it is a forward movement in his career rather than staying in the past like this town is made up to be like you know, it, it feels like it's, you know, late 1800s and all this stuff until they start mentioning Charlie Chaplin and 
they have you know like plastic halloween costumes and all this stuff like oh this is a town that is stuck in the past and forward motion might kill the town but it's good for the country and in the same way that like bob dylan going electric kills the the very niche fandom that he has of these people that like the folk music but it's forward movement for ultimately the rock and roll scene overall like it is you know changing with the times versus staying with the past and to present the bob dylan stand-in on the other side of the argument here has you know there's again a lot of implications that i don't know if i have the vocabulary to fully articulate but the movie's saying something about that i don't know probably maybe i could just be reading into it too much I think most definitely. I think that the, I think um, uh, visually the town is gorgeous. It resembles, as you said, like a pantomime. It's just the costumes and landscape. It's absolutely stunning. I don't know if it's just, you know, how the sun shines in whatever county that they may be in, but it is just beautiful to look at after being, you know, in London, after being in the interview room, after being sort of in the more weary, I'm not sure exactly where Robbie and his wife live, but it's just, there's something dark afoot uh, where they are, but yeah, it's absolutely, I don't know, it's sunny, it's gorgeous. And I think, yeah, again, I'll try to articulate this, but I am a bit of a, I'm not afraid to admit it, I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to embracing Bob Dylan's, you know, more recent offerings. Yeah. I don't think I've listened to you know, don't crucify me, whoever may be listening to this, but I don't think I've listened to any of his albums past 2006, past Modern Times, which was before this film. Um, I think I, the, the the albums, the most recent albums that I would actually listen to uh, on repeat would be from the 70s and 80s. Yeah. I'm a pure, I'm a purist. So, yeah, what am I trying to say exactly? That, yeah, I'm definitely caught up in the past i spin his you know blonde on blonde and um blood on the tracks so i definitely have this romanticized version of the man and that might not be good for the country but he still continues to pump out records as you said there was a 20 minute song something like he did yeah the one about jfk or something um do they name the the highway is it highway 61 do they go that you know, literal with I'm it. I'm pretty sure. They, I'm pretty sure they don't because that okay. song. I don't. That song. That song's not featured in the film. That song. Yeah. That song's featured in Walk the Line. I think of all movies. Well, that's it's a very. Um, yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a good. It's a good song because it's so electric and it's so eccentric as well. Yeah. But, um No, I'm pretty. That would be Todd Haynes would not do that to us. Yeah. He's yeah. I was. I, w- I was going to say. <laughs> are, they, are they really going that? you know no. winking at the audience by having it be highway 61 okay i'm I'm glad um but yeah you, like you mentioned the visuals of the billy the kid section and apparently the at least a few of the different sections of this movie were modeled after specific movies or movie genres like all of that is based on like the sam peckinpah and the other like 70s sort of hippie westerns and all of the jude quinn stuff is you know I think specifically eight and a half was the one they cited. And that makes sense with all of the stark black and white. And again, the, the sunglasses that he has on, he feels very uh, Marcello Mastroianni. 
uh, with the way that he, I mean, he's, he's not remotely as cool as Marcello, but the glasses sort of, you know, tie in uh, uh, that character who I don't remember the name of is also an asshole to all of the women in his life, much like Jude Quinn is uh, to everyone. But, you know, uh, those influences are definitely felt. And a lot of the uh, the stuff with Robbie is based on, like, uh, Masculine Feminine and other movies by, I'm blanking on that director's name, and that is uh, going to be... I, I don't, I don't want to say the wrong French director. Uh, Godard, yeah. Yeah, that's Godard. I didn't want to say Truffaut and then have it be Godard or the other way around, but it was Godard. Uh, and it was based on a lot of his sort of, you know, dramas. And, you know, the part, part of the Robbie section is in France, I think is where he's filming the movie. I don't know. Uh, I lost where I was going. Oh, yes. Yeah, the, the, just the visuals. Um, uh, this was, excuse me, this was shot by Edward Lockman, who works a lot with Todd Haynes. I think he was the DP on... Uh, like everything that he's done since Far From Heaven, I want to say. Because uh, I, I don't think he shot Velvet Gold Mine or Safe or any of his 90s stuff, but everything since Far From Heaven uh, has been with Lockman. Uh, and he also did uh, like True Stories, uh, David Byrne's True Stories. He did The Virgin Suicides. Uh, he did Aaron Brockovich. He's, he's a very interesting cinematographer he's done some very beautiful movies like far from heaven like carol which are still his only two oscar nominations which is kind of crazy um but yeah this movie it, it looks really good and it's not just oh we're gonna make it look like the 60s we're gonna make it look like bob dylan times in every section it's very intentional the way that some scenes are shot versus how other sections are you know lit and framed like the it's he's basically shooting six different movies in one movie and that's a that's a technical feat that i don't know i mean it, it's good cinematography it is this is a this is a strong year for cinematography at the oscars so it's understandable why this doesn't get a nomination but it's 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 good work regardless um and then i also wrote down the editor uh was jay rabinowitz who has done a lot of Jim Jarmusch movies. Uh, he, sh he edited Requiem for a Dream. He did Eight Mile. He did The Tree of Life. Uh, so he's done a bunch of, you know, really interesting work. And he's never been nominated for an Oscar. And that's kind of crazy. He, he, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Requiem is, like I mentioned when I did that episode, so well edited and should have been nominated. And uh, like Dead Man and Ghost Dog and all of the Jarmusch that he's done. Uh, and Tree of Life, also expertly edited. Uh, this movie too, this movie. Like it's, it's cutting between these six different sections. And yeah. e even if we don't like the Christian Bale stuff as much, the movie never drags. The movie always keeps no. you interested. It gives you the exact right amount of every section. It's never like, oh, well, that wasn't enough, Kate. Go back to Kate. I don't want to watch ledger go back to kate we were still we were just getting into it like it's never that it's, it gives you the exact right amount not too much not too little you spend exactly enough time with everyone it's which is really tough when you're doing six different stories that are so disparate uh it, it's De definitely yeah. and i think that you know of course it gives it away with heath ledger starring in this film but 
when I was watching it again, I'm going, this looks so good for 2007. This is yeah. ahead of its time. Yeah. You can think about some of it, not the garbage that was coming out then, but I just think, nah, this is, this is tight. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is so stylish. This is so, we didn't deserve this. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Todd Haynes remains uh not even underappreciated, but like he he hasn't He's beyond that. He hasn't gotten his proper due. Uh I've seen no, of his features, I think the only one I haven't seen is Poison. I think I haven't seen that either. Which was his first one, but like I I mean I've caught up on a lot of them more recently than others, but like mm. everything he's done is solid to great work. Safe is great. Velvet Goldmine is great. Far From Heaven is a masterpiece. This is, this is his follow-up to Far From Heaven. Uh, and that was like, hey, welcome to the Oscars, Todd Haynes. We're not going to nom... He might have gotten this. I don't know if he's a screenwriter on that. But like that movie gets nominated for Julianne and screenplay and cinematography and a few others. Doesn't get a picture nomination. Doesn't get a director nomination. Should have but doesn't uh but it, that's like okay todd haynes you've been this indie guy for years that like everyone that's cool likes todd haynes movies now this movie is you know big enough that we can welcome you into the fold uh so like it makes sense from that why i'm not there which is otherwise a very not academy friendly movie why that can still get consideration for kate because mm. they like todd haynes now so they're gonna be more they're gonna look at it yeah they're gonna look at his movies more thoroughly uh for a potential nomination and then after that is his next movie carol does he not do anything for like the next eight years or am I forgetting very, um, yeah i don't want to rely too much on the internet but i'm just his uh filmography is very tight from memory yeah. and carol's 2015 so yeah that's his next a, movie. oh he does the Mildred Pierce miniseries in between, and I imagine that took yeah, a long right. time. Um, no, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to. When you mentioned when we're expanding on the Todd Haynes universe, like um, Bob Dylan was, yeah, very important to me. Still is uh, musically, like apart from film, it's a cliche, but music is so important. And it's like he can see into my brain because what's like one of the one of the other bands that is most important to me is the Velvet Underground. And of course that's probably one of the best I don't know if you call it a documentary. It is um if you haven't seen it already. I it is yet, but I really want to. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we, everything, yeah, he's got the Midas touch. It's just yeah extraordinary what he does. I mean, all his films I don't know why he specializes or just tends to gravitate towards um, music, uh, films uh, concentrating on queerness. It's just, yeah. it's a delight. Yeah. He knows his um, craft. He does. And that, like, uh, it's, I didn't mention it because it's not a feature, but like his first sort of like the movie. Car- that, yeah. Superstar, the Karen <laughs> Carpenter story. The, the like 45 minute <laughs> short about the Carpenter's, uh, uh, done almost entirely with Barbie dolls, which I watched that. That's another yeah. movie about our relationship to these stars and these music icons and mm. their deaths and what that means about, you know, legacy and celebrity and all that. And it's, it's, it's really well done. It is, you know, I, I don't know, just like, there, that's a whole thing to unpack is 
what that movie <laughs> does, but it's great. Um, uh, but then, yeah, Carol is another masterpiece from Todd Haynes that didn't get its proper due. Should have been a Best Picture, Best Director it's nomination. Disgusting, Kate, disgusting yeah. Kate again, <laughs> fantastic in that movie. One of her, another one of her best performances. Like almost every performance she's given is one of her best performances. But that is like top five, Kate Blanchett, no doubt. Um, and then I also I haven't seen Dark Waters. Is the other one I haven't seen the Mark Ruffalo one from a couple years ago that kind of came and went. Um, but like even Wonderstruck, which is not a masterpiece, it's still f- a sweet movie. That's still again working with Julianne Moore again. She's good in that it's based on a book by the same guy who wrote the book that hugo is based on and i loved that book when i was a kid uh the invention of hugo cabret which is it's like a a picture book basically but it's like this thick because there's so many very very intricate pictures on like almost every other page uh that's that's a beautiful book that i just was obsessed with when i was a kid uh so I, I would be curious to read the book that Wonderstruck is based on. Apparently that's also like all of the stuff that is the flashback to the girl that I think en- ends up growing up to be Julianne Moore. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. But the deaf girl from A Quiet Place. I think all of that is told via illustration in the book. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, but Wonderstruck, it's an okay movie. And again, Todd Haynes doing something interesting visually, playing with and in this case, film rather than uh, uh, music, but like all of the silent film iconography that he does in that movie is really beautiful. Uh, yeah, Todd Haynes, great director. Uh, is he? Does he have anything coming up uh, that has been announced? What? what um, not from memory. The Velvet oh, Underground. Oh no! Yes, he does. He, he's doing the. Uh, oh, okay. The Peggy Lee biopic that Nora Ephron wrote with Michelle Williams, which don't Oscars don't uh, don't disrespect Todd Haynes like you've done in the past. That that sounds or like it's, it's yeah or Michelle Williams uh, that like that sounds like who we didn't mention much in this movie uh, as Coco Rivington, but she's she's good. Uh, but yeah, the the Peggy Lee biopic uh, called Fever is at least the tentative title. Uh, that should be good uh, based on everything that we know about Todd Haynes as a filmmaker. I don't think that he's going to fuck that up somehow after decades of being a fantastic director. I have high he's hopes. Legally, he's legally not allowed to. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> physically not allowed to. Uh, no. Yeah. High hopes for that one. High hopes for maybe that'll be Michelle's Oscar if she doesn't win uh, for, because she's playing Steven Spielberg's mom in the new Spielberg, the baby Spielberg movie that he's doing this year. So that could be her Oscar. And if it's not, maybe Peggy Lee, maybe. She's got, she like, she's, she has to win at some point. Like it, it is a long time coming uh, for her. Um, What else do I have in my notes here? Oh, like we mentioned, there's the, the Ballad of the Thin Man montage. So there's a few moments like that where the movie goes even more abstract like the the point where uh woody gets thrown off the train into the river and it's kind of like a like for whatever reason that felt like the the intro to the elephant man where you know woody is yeah yeah. 
and he has like all the other vagabonds like sort of fading in and out and talking on him. I don't know why, but that moment felt a little bit, it's very cliche to say Lynchian, but it felt a little bit Lynchian in its presentation. I don't know. Uh, but not, you know, I'm not saying Lynchian as a general thing. I'm talking about specifically in reference to one moment. So I am allowed to use the word Lynchian because it's not overused in this particular usage. I wasn't going to crucify you. It's fine. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> I, just, I just know that people get very defensive about usage of Lynchian to, to, to mean mm. a little bit weird. Uh, what else about the movie? But I don't know. I think there's there's so much that could be said would need probably a 10 hour episode because oh yeah yeah the notes that i made were pretty extensive yeah i have yeah there's a lot oh uh, apparently in the uh while he was trying to get this movie made uh haynes like his either his publicist or dylan's uh, like manager or someone had him write up a one-page summary of what the movie was going to be and they were basically like don't say voice of a generation because if you do, he's going to reject you because he hates being called the voice of a generation. So he writes up like this one page thing. It describes the six different facets he's going to get into and sort of describes what the movie's going to be. And Dylan gave him permission to use his music because uh, uh, when he was making Velvet Goldmine uh, and he had approached Bowie to be like, hey, can I use your songs in this movie that's kind of about you, but not really... Bowie said no because he was planning on also doing a similar movie about that era and wanted to use his music in that and then ended up not making the movie anyway. But I think Velvet Goldmine works for the better by not having Bowie's music in it and having it be much more pastiche about Bowie and also like five other guys. Whereas this movie is just Bob Dylan. So like I I think yeah, it works there by not having the existing songs. I think that just, you know, David Bowie, <laughs> um, he, his career was just as illustrious, if not more, but it's just like visually he was so appealing, you know, um, so many of us like lust over him and I just think he was a performer, whereas Bob Dylan, it's just first and foremost, he, yeah, he might be, a, he might have been a performer back in the day, but he, uh, he's a storyteller first yeah. and foremost, like he's known for his lyrics, he's not known for his, you know, uh, Bowie can sing. He can sing. He can do covers. I mean, Bobby can sing, but it's not, it's not the most beautiful, you know, tenure in the world. But I think yeah. that it means, you know, his songs just, they mean so much to, you know, so many people in so many different ways. If someone says that their favourite song is, you know, Simple Twist of Fate, it's completely different to when someone says that their favourite song is Tangled Up in Blue. So yeah. I just... I don't know about you, like you said that your friend that you watched it with said that they don't listen to much apart from Bob Dylan. And I think whoever I was trying to engage in conversation when I watched this film, a lot of people were really off put because they thought they had this idea of what a biopic should be or what a film about a real person should be. And they're just, you know, they were mad. A lot of people were mad. Oh, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's pretentious. And I'm just like, well, actually you know if you appreciate stories if you appreciate lyrics and whether it's you know linear or not or whether it's like fact or fiction you know that's what matters yeah yeah 2007 in particular has a lot of music biopic fever 
in the air. Like this movie, like it's coming off of uh, most notably uh, Ray and Walk the Line were like the two big ones that had dominated in the past like three years before this. But like this is the anti-biopic. This is the anti-biopic year because you have this movie, which is, you know, the antithesis of everything formulaic that that movie that those movies are doing this is also as we were mentioning uh walk hard the dewey cox story is the same year which is the like a the the picture perfect parody of that kind of biopic that is so strongly uh uh satirical of those types of movies that it kind of killed the music biopic for a few years because everyone that saw well, it's not like walk hard was a, a massive hit uh it's kind of no. grown in status since then but uh like it, it it is so biting about everything that those movies do that like in the years after that you can't really follow that same formula because it's just going to be oh they did this in walk hard and then bohemian rhapsody you know stole it all back and was like hey we're going to do walk hard again but it's serious uh that uh, yeah no Bohemian Rhapsody is just walk hard without jokes about Freddie Mercury. But, uh, but this is also the year, it's not even close to trying to be a biopic, but like Across the Universe is a jukebox musical taking a bunch of songs from one art, like, I mean, from the Beatles and then making its own thing with that. And I haven't seen it, but I've heard Control is like more of a artistic look. So... Yeah, I was just about to say, it's funny that you mentioned probably like my least favourite musical film across the universe, which, you know, I, I appreciate the Beatles so much, but Control, along with um, I'm Not There, Control is one of the most affecting, you know, films for me. I mean, I don't know, Joy Division was the first tattoo that I ever got, like, a little bit obsessed, and yeah. I can't recommend it enough. I think yeah. that was a 2000 and seven or a 2008 yeah, film it's also in the same year and i've i've heard really good things i do want to see it it is uh it is a tour like i'm gonna sound like a wanker but it is a tour de force it is uh, i've only seen it twice i think i think i had to see it a second time to believe that it was real um because it is it's quite uh raw i mean ian curtis only lived to 23 so we don't really he, he covered a lot of ground but we don't really get to spend much time, you know, following him because he didn't lead much of a long life. Yeah. Oh, it's, an it's an incredible film. And I feel like it is a companion piece, most definitely, to I'm Not There. I'm Not There is more artistic. Uh, Control is, oh, it's not a happy movie. Yeah. It is I, not a happy movie, <laughs> but yeah. it, it's, it's an essential movie. Yeah. I, I have heard nothing but good things about it. You but need to see yeah. it. I, I, I will not preach about many things, but Control is, yeah, it's essential cinema. Uh, yeah. Whether you're a fan of Joy Division or not, it's just, I think it paints a portrait of, you know, Manchester of England just so well. The nihilism, it's, it's gorgeous to look at. Oh, my God. I might have to watch it again. It's probably been like, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then also the same year, as far as music biopics, uh, this is also the year that Marion Cotillard wins Best Actress for La Vie en Rose, which is more formulaic than something like I'm Not There. But, you know, that's not saying much. Everything is more formulaic than I'm Not There. But, like, even still, that movie 
plays a lot with timeline jumping and it doesn't hit it hits some of the beats as far as like presenting the life of uh, Edith Piaf but it is much more abstract in the way it goes about that rather than something like Walk the Line or Ray or any of these other biopics that are, that came out in the immediate like people wanted something different people wanted different ways of telling the lives of these musical yeah. icons uh which i hope that is what they do with the timothy chalamet bob dylan movie that's coming out at some of point course. uh which yeah, is it's funny also, that- yeah about the period where he goes electric i think the movie's even called going electric but like mm-hmm. i uh am cautiously optimistic because they could yeah. very much make it a bohemian Rhapsody style thing or they could like as this movie shows there are interesting ways to present that period in dylan's life and it could go either way and i think i don't want to generalize here at all but yeah just thinking about i hadn't thought of Livy and rose um but that is of course it's based on a it is a biopic but I just think, yeah, mentioning control, mentioning um, that, and even though Todd Haynes is American, I just think um, being a queer man, maybe he just sees, sees things, again, not to generalise, but in a different way. And that's what maybe differs from a lot of these other run-of-the-mill biopics. Walk the Line, even though it is, yeah, it's a solid film. Yeah. It's, it's fine. It's, it, it's, it is, it's fine. It is fine. fine. It's we love Johnny Cash it's goddamn long there's a reason i haven't seen it in a long time yeah um yeah ray uh even yeah across the universe i'm pretty sure is an american production um yeah julie yeah, Bohemian is, is julie what, yeah where is julie Taymor from and again i don't want to yeah i don't want to shit yeah, on you know american productions but i just think the entertainment industry is so huge that yeah we can you can generate all these massive biopics oh here's this real person let's you know spew out a movie based on their lives, whereas films like Control, yeah, La Vie and Rose, um, I'm trying to think of maybe like an Australian or a New Zealand example. About, I'm sure there yeah, is like, um, Yeah, just off the top of my head, I'm not really thinking. I mean, I think about Nick Cave. There's an upcoming Nick Cave film. Oh, is there? Um, yeah, with his, uh, um, one of his collaborators. It doesn't premiere here for another month. But I just think that, yeah, um, Todd Haynes might be the exception of the rule and it's probably because he has this very specific, very consistent and very gay. Yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to say it? I was a yeah. queer person, you know, he had a very specific lens. Yeah. So, yeah, there are biopics that can be decent, case in point. Yeah, and the, but, best, um, yeah, the best ones are movies like this or Velvet Goldmine that, like, they're not strictly biopics because they take a lot of liberties and they, they change a lot of truths, but they are more willing to be introspective about what the person stood for and what their faults were and what like where they went wrong. And stuff like Walk the Line, yeah, it shows Johnny Cash as a flawed individual, but it doesn't get at it more than, you know, oh, he was an alcoholic he was an addict he was a a bad partner like it it doesn't get at the why behind it it doesn't get at what he stood for it's just here's a flawed guy that made music and got famous here's his life the end and here's him 
goes into his wife on stage. Woohoo, happy ending. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. yeah, I think about the ending to, you know, yeah, I'm not there. Um, and that was one of the most frustrating things I heard about people that had seen. I think my parents, you know, watched, you know, maybe it's speaking to the older generation, you know, they love Bob Dylan as much as me, but um, oh, they were pissed off with the ending of I'm not there. I believe it's just um, Billy the Kid, you know, talking about he's on the boxcar, he finds the guitar, and he's just talking about, you know, you might not know about one day or the next day. It's very ambiguous. And they're just going, well, what sort of ending was that? And then it, um, it segues into it's the only time you ever see Bob Dylan and he's just playing the harmonica. Yeah. And I just go, yeah, how do you summarise a film about Dylan or the many facets of him? You don't. You really you don't. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was another thing about, like, this movie uh, was, did not do well at the box office. It, you know, made, yeah. it made just over half the production uh, cost back. It was like a $20 million budget, made $11 million. Uh, and I, I read some reviews from the time and some, you know, criticisms of it. And mostly it was, if you really like Bob Dylan, if you're really, like, aware of bob dylan as a person you will probably like the movie if you don't if you're just like casually aware of him you might not like it it'll still like be interesting but it's gonna be like okay so what's the point and uh, i mean like i i'm not a huge like acolyte of bob dylan I, i've liked a lot of his music but I, I like i don't know the whole story i don't know a lot of you know stuff about him about his life uh, I, I would, I'm definitely more of a casual fan than a hardcore Bob Dylan fan, but I still really like this movie because, you know, but like not everyone is going to, not everyone is going to see the things and know the references and know the things that are being called back to. Uh, and that's probably why the movie is, you know, not a hit, not a huge cultural thing that we talk about as like, one of the great movies of this year, probably why it doesn't get any other nominations outside of Kate Blanchett, not just at the Oscars, but pretty much everywhere. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a second. But like, this is kind of like the buck stops with Kate Blanchett when it comes to awarding this movie, yeah. uh, for most people, because even if you don't like the movie, it's she's just undeniable. But the rest of it is... It definitely turned off a lot of audiences, and I can see why. Uh, yeah, do you have anything else to say about the movie specifically? Anyone in the cast, any of the production, anything like that? No, but I just think, yeah, I think it is uh, so overlooked. Yeah. I mean, it's been out for 15 years, so just if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? It's two hours, 15 minutes of your time that you won't regret. I think um, I am not well-versed in Bob Dylan's personal life, nor do I really want to be. I think yeah. it's his music. And I think, as I said before, like the only thing that we see really of his personal life that may or not be, you know, completely true is his relationship with um, his wife, Sarah, which is Charlotte Gainsbourg and Heath Ledger. So, yeah, truly, um, I think if you appreciate, you know, lyrics, if you appreciate storytelling, if you appreciate Todd Haynes, you're in for a good time. And if you don't, you know, like it, I mean, you're not going to regret it. Yeah. There are a it's lot still of, in, yeah. you know. It's not 2007, boring. Yeah. 
God, no. I think 2007, you know, there was a lot of, I think, like, action films were sort of reaching their messy kind of CGI, you know, fest. There was an oversaturation of that. So, yeah, I'm Not There was just this perfect little gem of a film. And, yeah, as I said, like, Walk the Line is for people who maybe need their hand held for the nitty-gritty of Johnny Cash, you know. I Love Them Equal Parts as a song that they um, share on, I think, Nashville Skyline by Bob Dylan, one of his earliest albums. And, yeah, Johnny Cash didn't have a very comfortable life. He started off, I mean, they're both American icons, but uh, I think Bob Dylan's, you know, lyricism definitely can inspire more mysterious more artsy biopics so oh stuff it if you're not even a fan of bob dylan give this a go yeah please yeah <laughs> yeah they don't like if, if you don't like his music they they do use his songs but a lot of the time some of it's covers some of it is instrumentals so mm. if, if you're that averse to his voice you don't have to hear it all that often um yeah yeah uh let's um let's move on and talk about I'm not there at the Oscars and the 2007 awards presence of it. The nominees for Best Supporting Actresses are... Kate Blanchett in I'm Not There. Ruby Dee in American Gangster. Saoirse Ronan in Atonement. Amy Ryan in Gone Baby Gone. Tilda Swinton in Michael Clayton. So there were more, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, tabs on the IMDb awards page than I realized. Like, I I would have expected this to be like, yeah, I know Kate got in all the big places, uh, all the big precursors you need, and, you know, probably some other critic stuff, but, like, she really got pretty much every critic's nomination that you can get. Uh, but before we get into any of that, I did say that this movie premiered at Venice, so there's a lot of stuff that happened at Venice uh, for this movie. Uh, it was, it, it played in competition, so it was up for the Golden Lion. It doesn't win uh, uh, the Golden Lion that year went to Lost Caution, Ang Lee's Lust Caution, uh, which I haven't seen, but I've heard is very good. Uh, But it wins the special jury prize, uh, which it ties with uh, the secret light or the secret of the grain, which I haven't heard of beyond this, uh, directed by the same guy who did Blue is the Warmest Color. Don't know anything about it. Um, Kate wins the Volpe Cup for Best Actress, uh, which uh, I mean, it makes sense. It is, like we said, a powerhouse performance. Uh, she wasn't there to accept, uh, but Heath accepted on her behalf, which is sweet. Uh, it, it is up for the Queer Lion, uh, which uh, uh, the Speed of Life wins. I don't know anything about that one. I've, uh, do you know anything about that? Have you heard of that? No, no. I was um, actually, yeah, trying to become, in the last couple of months, more sort of well-versed with the awards. That I think after... Um, being a little bit shirty with uh, films like Titan, not 
making any waves at the Oscars, even for like best international feature, I'm going, well, but it won the Palme d'Or. Like what, what's up with that? Yeah. I was actually looking at like, I know that it's not the same as Cannes, not the same as Venice, but I'm just going, yeah, well, what sort of awards are actually awarded outside of, you know, the heavy hitters? And yeah, there are all these sort of like, there's courage, bravery, there's, um, there's all manner of awards that I think are just so much more interesting and so much more, I don't know, there's a lot more room for movement than um, maybe the more rigid. Again, I'm not trying to shit on everything that America does when it comes oh, no. to entertainment. Go for it. Shit on the Oscars. Um, this podcast is, uh, as much as anything else, a podcast about shitting on the Oscars. So go well, for it. Well, yeah, that's, that's, what, well, that's one thing that I did in my previous you know, outing with you, and it's one thing that I will do in this, is that the performance that, performances that I've chosen to speak about, I feel like both women... Yeah, it should have been awarded the Oscars, but we know that that's not the ideal parallel universe that we live in. So, yeah, at least Kate, you know, was recognised by her European peers, which goes a long way. Yeah, uh, so. it, it also wins something called the Cinema Venire Award, which I couldn't find anything about what that means, but that's something else they gave it uh, at Venice. Um, the The jury that year was interesting. Um, there were some names in here that I didn't recognize, but like the jury president was uh, Zhang Yimou. And then you also have uh, Jane Campion, Alejandro Inyaritu, and Paul Verhoeven all on the jury, which like, I'd want to be in that uh, jury deciding room, I guess. Uh, I don't know. That's something that's always fascinating uh, talking about like Venice or Cannes is to just pick a random year and look at who was on the jury and just yeah, try to yeah. imagine them in a room together talking about these movies. Like, I don't know, especially with Cannes, they'll get some really weird people together in one year. Like, I don't know, I can't pull one off the top of my head, but that's always just a fun thing to go, like a Wikipedia rabbit hole to be like, all of these people at one point watched a bunch of movies together and then sat down in a room and talked about what was their favorite. I want to hear like Quentin Tarantino and Elle Fanning talking about which of these movies they preferred yeah. or like yeah. i don't know sofia coppola and i like Hawkins, you want to hear them talk about something. yes like robert altman and jim carrey i don't think that was ever one but you know it's it's that type of disparate personality that i, I just want to hear th these people talk about movies together yeah. yeah i don't know just that's always something that's fun um i think it brings yeah. a bit of yeah i think it brings a bit of humanity to the awards rather than the oscars of these you know there's all these hidden kind of faceless men because we know it's predominantly men that are yeah. voting for these awards and i still it's it's like the american voting system i still cannot for the life of me like understand how it really works at the end of the yeah. day whereas you know having having a jury just seems so much more simple and it seems like consistently if you look at yeah Khan or venice um berlin it seems like generally the most artistic or like well-deserving actors actresses and films usually get awarded they might not get the best they might not get the golden statuettes but they usually get recognized yeah and they will get fully snubbed at the oscars which we know is the awards that really matter yep that is uh <laughs> and then uh Getting into some of those other 
precursors. Uh, Kate Blanchett really does sort of, this is a very interesting supporting actress year. This is a year that's, uh, that it got, is. yeah, it got brought up a bunch this year and last year because when you look at the four major precursors that like essentially have the biggest bearing on predicting who's going to win, it went to a different person at every ceremony. So at the Golden Globe, Kate Blanchett wins. Uh, she wins Best Supporting Actress. The nominee lineup is four for five with the Oscars. It's uh, Tilda Swinton for Michael Clayton, who goes on to win the Oscar. Saoirse Ronan for Atonement. Um, Amy Ryan for Gone Baby Gone, another movie I'm going to do at some point yes. on this podcast, uh, which yes. is another very strong performance. This is, it's also, a, like, for as much as an interesting lineup, it's also a really good lineup. Um, and the other Oscar nominee for an Oscar for it until I checked, and I'm going, she she wasn't. Oh, that's so that's such a hate crime. Yeah. <laughs> and the other person that uh, got the Globe nomination is Julia Roberts for Charlie Wilson's War, which is a bad yeah. performance in a bad movie. Average, yeah, very. I'm like, I'm sorry, uh, Sidney Pollack. Did he direct that? Who did? No. Probably. No, isn't it Mike Nichols? Didn't I think it's Austin Mike Rondo. Nichols? Oh man. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a Mike Nichols movie. Oh boy, it's a bad movie. Um, <laughs> but like, and it's an, another movie I'm going to talk about on the show at some point for Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's good, but it's Julia Roberts is not good in that movie. Uh, but she gets the Globe nomination over Ruby D for American Gangster. Uh, who ends up getting the Oscar nomination. Uh, going over to BAFTA, Kate Blanchett is nominated there again. Tilda Swinton ends up winning. Saoirse Ronan is there. And then you also have Kelly MacDonald for No Country for Old Men and Samantha Morton for Control, which uh, the aforementioned uh, beloved Control. Uh, Screen Actors Guild, yeah. Blanchett is nominated. Ruby D ends up winning there, which felt... It's, it's, Having seen the movie now, that's more of a lifetime achievement. Ruby Dee is an icon of screen and stage. Yes. Rather than, she's in Six Minutes of American Gangster, which is like a three-hour movie. Uh, but then also, uh, and, and then instead of Saoirse Ronan, you have Catherine Keener for Into the Wild nominated there. And then at Critics' Choice, Kate Blanchett is nominated. Amy Ryan ends up winning. Uh, and then Tilda Swinton is nominated. Catherine Keener shows up again. And Vanessa Redgrave for Atonement is also nominated there. So there's no clear front runner going into the Oscars this year. It is truly wide open for anyone because, you know, Michael Clayton is the only movie that has multiple acting nominations this year. That's a Best Picture nominee. Uh, Tilda won BAFTA. But then Kate Blanchett, you know, won the Golden Globe and won some other stuff and she's the critic's favorite. But the movie, it's her only nomination as we're talking about here. Ruby Dee won SAG, is a legend, but she's only in six minutes of the movie. Amy Ryan was the other critic's favorite. Like, everywhere that wasn't going to Tilda or Kate, Amy Ryan was picking up. She won a bunch of, uh, like, major critics stuff. But again, she's the only nomination there. And then Saoirse Ronan doesn't win anything, but Atonement is, in, is a Best Picture nominee, and she's the yeah. only acting nominee. So maybe if they want to reward Atonement somewhere, voters would go to her. So, like, truly it was like anyone could have won and then it ends yeah. up going to tilda who is very good in michael clayton you're making a face uh, do you do you not agree yeah, with I um no i rewatched michael clayton recently um because i'd only seen it the once and i don't have to 
confirm this with you, like Tilda Swinton and Kate Blanchett in the same category, in the same conversation, in the same sentence. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's... there's no beautiful thing in the world. Absolutely. Um, but her. I just, yeah. I just think, yeah, Tilda, I don't know. I, I watched know. it. I, That's yeah, fair. She was, yeah. a, she was, she, she tried, like, not she tried, she did better than try. She performed that. She she played a character called Karen, for God's sake. But I just think yeah. Michael Clayton is, oh, she was probably the best part of a film where, you know, someone had a psychotic break and, you know, there was detonations, but, and George Clooney's in it being George Clooney. But does anyone really remember what Michael Clayton is about 15 years later? Does anyone watch Michael Clayton for the hell of it? I, Let's I, watch Michael yeah. Clayton. Yeah, may, maybe not that. I, I know. I know it's a. It's a. I, I like it probably more than you do. I. I do think it's a good movie. But yeah, you're right. It, it hasn't necessarily it's, stood the test of time. And yeah, I, I think it, like I watched it very recently after not watching it for maybe twelve years or so. And it has, it still looks good. I mean, the narration, um, I'm not sure exactly who was doing the narration in the beginning and in parts of the film. Uh, Tom Wilkinson, no, it was an extremely solid film. I'm, I'm not trying to shit on it completely. Oh, yeah, no, I got but you. I just thought that Tilda, I didn't time how much she was on screen for. I don't think she was used as much as she could have. That's um, true. She was a, she was a ruthless um, counsel, but I don't think she was... Yeah, I don't think she was utilised as much as she could have been. She really uh, was at her most electric right at the end of the film yeah. in the confrontation with Clooney. But I just think comparatively it is a competition at the end of the day. I just think it, it was no competition between what Kate did and Tilda. I mean, no, nah, like for me it just, I think at the time, you know, I was a pretty passive-aggressive, angry teenager and I just think maybe maybe the Oscars weren't ready to award, you know, a woman technically playing a bloke, even though, you know, it's there's no point getting into gender because there, there isn't. You're just playing a role. Yeah. Um, it's Kate Blanchett, the actress, you know, being awarded for playing a role. Um, but I just think they went with a safe bet. I think um, a deserving winner that... I think there were two others that should have won over Tilda. Yeah, that's... Controversially aligns with you. Oh, no, that's actually exactly where I am. Like, I mean, I think it's still... I think I'm higher on the performance than you are, but I still put her third in this lineup. Like, what Kate is doing here, and I'll get into it in in, in a future episode, but what Amy Ryan is doing in Gone Baby Gone are just... They're powerhouse performances. They are undeniable uh, and... Yeah, I mean, I, either one of them, like, like I said, Kate is, it's one of my favorite performances of the 2000s. Uh, so no, no surprise that she's my winner here. But like, Amy Ryan would have been also a very good winner if she had uh, come out victorious. And yeah, I mean, Tilda is still kind of baffling that that's her only nomination in her long career. Right? crazy right she's had so many like it's not indicative of who tilda swinton in is as an actress that she wins for this very very aggressively normal character but 
it's still exactly exactly i'm still glad she has an oscar at the end of the day like we we wouldn't have got that oscar speech where she doesn't thank the academy yeah or she makes a joke about the the bat nipples uh on the george clooney like it's a it's a good speech she gives good speeches she should she should be nominated more we should we need to do that for her I thought she was really good in uh, Memoria this past year. If you saw that, the Apichat Pung, uh, where is that the cool movie? I, yeah, yeah I, I mean, she's, she's I, whatever she does. <laughs> yeah, she's 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 allowed to do whatever she wants to do at this point. Uh, she can just sort of show up and be delightfully weird, and that's her thing. Um, but yeah, looking at some of the other awards that this got, and like I said, it got a lot. Uh, the Independent Spirit Awards, it is up for Best Picture, Best Director, Supporting Actress. Uh, it's also uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Marcus Carl Franklin, which is a very good nomination. It's the only other acting, it's the only other individual acting nomination this movie gets anywhere that isn't for Kate, which, I don't, I don't, like I said, he's my favorite cast member other than her. So it's nice that he got recognized somewhere. I think it's a strong performance from him and it's it's worthy of an indie spirit nomination it is uh and then also uh so this is the first year that the indie spirits start giving out the robert altman award which is basically their best ensemble uh which goes to the director the casting director and the cast uh so it was like the year after altman died and so this was the first year they give it out and they give it out every year it's not a nominating thing they just when they announce the nominations, they also announce, here's who won the Robert Altman Award. And so, like, this, it's an award that has gone to some very big, you know, some very, like, deserving casts. Uh, it went to Synecdoche, New York. It went to A Serious Man, wow. Inherent Vice, Spotlight, Moonlight, Mudbound, uh, Suspiria, Marriage Story, One Night in Miami, Mass. Like, this is a, it's a, a very select set of movies that have won the award. And, you know, it's nice that this movie got to be the inaugural pick because uh, it is deserving. Like we mentioned, everyone in this cast is strong from, uh, I think the, the only ones that want that were recognized, it's the six Bob Dylans and then also Charlotte Gainsbourg and Bruce Greenwood. So like no Julianne Moore, no Michelle Williams, no David Cross. Uh, but like, if you're going to pick out two other people in the cast, Gainsbourg and Greenwood are the one you want, ones you want to go for because they are incredibly strong. Uh, and also, I didn't mention it earlier, but when we were talking about him, but Bruce Greenwood, very handsome man, very good looking. You don't see it? I don't know. I, no, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, yeah, I don't know. Like, has this been preying on your mind that you need to bring it up? It's like, it goes I don't know. Saying. I, I, you're right. You're right. I just, I, I, I wanted to let the people know Bruce Greenwood, handsome. Uh, yeah, he was in Jared's, Gerald's game. Probably. Yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. No, yeah. He, he sort of scares me. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, he, he's got a little <laughs> bit of a, of a menacing thing yeah. going on. But I think it works. It, 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 it works for me. Um, where else do I even go? There's so much. Uh, the Gotham Awards, it is nominated for Best Feature, which it loses to Into the Wild. And this is before they gave out individual acting prizes. So... 
it's not that Kate didn't get nominated. It's that there wasn't an award for her to be nominated for. Uh, so uh, National Society of Film Critics, Kate Blanchett wins their Best Supporting Actress. New York Film Critics, it is a runner-up in Best Film, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actress for Kate Blanchett. Uh, Los Angeles Film Critics, uh, Kate Blanchett is also a runner-up. And the Satellite Awards, Kate is nominated for Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical, which apparently this is a musical, I guess, technically, because yeah. it's about music. I think in yeah, and I think in 2007, it's just, yeah, very loose terms. So yeah. where else were they going to watch it in drama? Yeah, why not? Which I think would be more appropriate. Oh, much more appropriate in drama, but people sing in the movie, so I guess it's a musical. Uh, people sing, but lip sync. I mean, I think, yeah, like Kate yeah. technically doesn't sing. I think Marcus, does he sing? Because I know that he has yes. a scene with... um. He sings with Richie Havens. Who... Yeah, he, he's the only one of the Bobs that sings in the movie where it's the actual actor singing. Yes. Because uh, uh, Christian Bale has a few moments where he sings too, but those are also dubbed. And then like yeah. Charlotte Gainsbourg, her character doesn't sing, but she's on the soundtrack. There's a few other people that yes. are on the soundtrack that aren't shown actually singing in yeah. the movie. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there are musical numbers. Like the whole... Ballad of the Thin Man sequence is a point where a character is singing on screen. So, like, I guess it does technically count as a musical. It's not just there's music playing in the background. Who's to- oh, it's a film that's got it's a film that's got music in it. That's why yeah. it in the musical category. Done. Move on. Yeah. Next. Why not? Why not? Um, looking at like this got a bunch of regional critic nominations and wins and stuff. So, looking at uh, places that only gave it to Kate or at least Kate's specific critic run she she wins supporting actress with Chicago film critics Las Vegas film critics Toronto uh, and Central Ohio and she's like a nominee or a runner-up at Boston Dallas Fort Worth Dublin Houston San Diego Southeastern film critics St. Louis film critics Utah Vancouver and the Alliance of Women film journalists I'll give Kate the nomination um and then just looking at other non-Kate Blanchett like nominations or wins that it gets with other critics. Uh, at the Boston Film Critics, it's a runner-up in Best Ensemble uh, tied with Superbad, which I don't know. Any award that has uh, I'm not there tied with Superbad for anything. Just like, what could that possibly be? <laughs> I was like, I'm a bit embarrassed. I've got Superbad like the soundtrack on vinyl, but I don't have, I'm not there. That's kind of. <laughs> no, Superbad is, Superbad is, a, and I'm pretty sure I have Superbad as like a five out of five on Letterboxd yeah. and I do not have, I'm not there as a five out of five. So yeah. <laughs> Superbad is a, um, is a very important film. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Also at the Dublin Film Critics, it, is, it comes in fifth place for Best Picture and third place for Best Director. Uh, San Diego Film Critics, Christian Bale wins a special award for his overall body of work in 2007 for this and Rescue Dawn and 310 to Yuma. Uh, at the St. Louis Film Critics, this wins the uh, most original, innovative, or creative film, which, like, duh. I mean, like, it is the most original creative uh but it's that's a weird 
it's an interesting lineup. It is across the universe, which, yeah, you don't like it, but at least it's a, it's oh, original. A lot of I'm, I'm in the minority for that, and I know it. Maybe I should give it another go. I, I haven't I seen it. Maybe. Yeah, I can't. I can't speak to that. Yeah, take it with a grain of salt. I think I tried to rewatch it maybe eight years ago, and I saw, it's just the cheesiness that I cannot do. It's a fine line with musicals for me, and I think when you're touching on the Beatles, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a tall order. Yeah, but then the other nominees for most original innovative or creative film are Enchanted, Juno, Persepolis, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and something called Into Great Silence, which I've never heard of. Uh no, but I mean Juno and uh Persepolis, that's yeah, two thousand and seven actually like pops off, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like it is control. It's like generally um, I think, probably like when people pick like best years in movies uh it is like the one from the 2000s that everyone points to just because like controlled men there will be blood zodiac uh uh atonement uh, all these great movies Uh, it's a it's also a year that i'm going to be talking about a lot on this show i've already done an episode on eastern promises i'm doing this episode like we mentioned i'm doing uh, Gone Baby Gone, I'm doing Charlie Wilson's War, and I'm also covering uh, In the Valley of Ella for Tommy Lee Jones' nomination. So that's what, five episodes on this year? Crazy. <laughs> wow. Crazy stuff. Uh, good year for movies. Very good year for movies. Uh, yeah. uh, what else do we have here? Uh, the Alliance of Women Fr- Film Journalists, it gets nominated for Best Editing. I'm glad somebody appreciated the editing in this movie. Uh, could have been more than just them, but like, it's very um, well edited. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're going to get back to like the Oscars and the editing list because I really um, I should yeah. research that a little bit further. But the editing, especially upon your know, rewatch, rewatch, my God, give that editor a raise. Like it's... that was some exceptional splicing and the decisions to yeah, like. It wasn't cookie cutter of, you know, we're going to spend, um, we're, we're going to jump from, you know, Marcus's iteration of um, Bob Dylan into um, Born Again Christian to Robbie into Kate into yada yada. We went all over the shop and oh, so artistic. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's really fantastic work. Um, uh, IndieWire Critics Poll, it comes in sixth place in picture, fourth place in director, and Kate Blanchett wins Best Supporting Performance. Uh, not a gendered category, but just supporting performance of the entire year. Yeah. She comes out on top for the overall Critics Poll, which you know, the critics really liked this performance, as meant, as you know the past 10 minutes have shown. This, she did extraordinarily well, even when they Ooh. weren't nominating the movie for anything else. Uh, and uh, even when they were. Like, the movie, for as much as it didn't really pick up any heat in picture or director outside of the critics' awards, it was, like, like I said, New York, it's, a, it's like, in the top three for picture and director, which, you know, New York is a pretty good gauge of where conversations are, so who's to say? Maybe if this yeah. were a, a year where they had 10 Best Picture nominees, this could have snuck in there in, like, ninth or 10th place. Uh, could be. Stranger yeah. things have happened. And I, yeah, and I, know, I know that it's not like awards per se, but like, you know, Rolling Stone's pretty revered. So 
I don't know exactly where it is, but like I, it's burnt into my memory that it was definitely like Peter Travers definitely included it in the top ten. Yeah, I, I, I can't say well. it probably wasn't top five, but it was definitely in the top ten. I know from like me devouring it on the magazine way back when. So in all that, yeah, like as you said. I'm Not There belongs in the same, you know, lineup as No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Zodiac, like I'm sure Juno was probably in the list. Like these are yeah. very extraordinary films and I'm Not There is, yeah, underappreciated, doesn't begin to scratch the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you think, yeah, especially when you think of like this might be, you know, not only like Ben Whishaw's, you know, his launching pad, but also I think that we think about Heath Ledger, all of us think about bloody Heath Ledger and it's, it's always the dark night, this, the dark night, that, but really like, I'm not there, you know, we're going to skip over. I'm not there. People yeah. forget that he was part of this. And this, yeah. you know, this was a Chris Bale film as well. Like they had, you know, these two films right before he passed so it's just it's it's insane how this film has been so overlooked and it's been yeah like I've doubled in age since this film's come out and it's even more affecting now. Yeah, it just sort of gets relegated to very good Kate Blanchett performance. Remember when they made the this movie see. about Bob Dylan? Like that's what the people talk see. about when they talk about the movie is Kate Blanchett yeah. and Bob Dylan and like that's those are the names that come up. But yeah, like there's a whole section on the Wikipedia page for top 10 lists of 20 of 2007 that it oh, got on. so it was it was uh, number nine on peter travers's uh list it's number one uh, on like village voice entertainment weekly salon boston globe uh it's there's like a good 20 or so lists <laughs> that makes the top 10 for across like a bunch of yeah. high profile publications uh, the critics really liked the movie um a few other things here. Uh, Village Voice film poll, another poll. Uh, fifth place in director, Kate Blanchett, comes in 10th place in lead actress, and she wins supporting actress. So, again, a lot of support for Kate. People really liked this performance. Justifiably so. It is, as we, as we keep on saying, a, an, an otherworldly performance. It is uh, deserving of all the praise and then some. Um, and then one last thing I wrote down here, which I just thought this was funny and wanted to put it in uh the women film critics circle uh gave it uh gave kate blanchett the award for the females right to men's uh, to male roles in movies award uh and then just below that on the on the imdb page they have their hall of shame for the year and it's like 10 movies that, oh, yeah, that did, yeah, yeah. did bad things for women uh yeah. and for hairspray and norbit they say Take a lesson from Kate Blanchett on how to do drag performances and style. Uh, so, like, even in other awards that they're giving out for negative things, they're like, hey, I'm not there. Yeah. Kate did it well. Fuck you, John Travolta, <laughs> I guess, is the, the lesson right to be learned here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, those are the main, like, and it wins, like, this is just the higher profile things like there's internet awards and other international festivals that played out there's like this is just scratching the surface of things that Kate Blanchett won or was nominated for for this movie or even other things that the movie got but like these are the 
interesting ones and the fun ones, I guess, is where I'll put that. Uh, but yeah, so let's let's talk about we we I mean we talked about the supporting actress race this year, but yeah, let's get into some of these other categories. Like you said, editing. This is a a a bit of a hot and cold year for editing. Uh, the winner is the Born Ultimatum, which I always forget ended up winning. Because I I guess because of a lot of the like handheld shaky cam fight scenes. Yeah, I don't know. I guess. I guess that's <laughs> enough to get it a, a film editing win when it's not a Best Picture nominee, which is very rare. Uh, but then you also have... Uh, very rare, did you say? I mean, this is the first episode, dear listener, that you are recording after the Oscars. That's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just talking about editing and Best Picture, which is, are we still, we don't need to talk about uh, it. Yeah. I'm taking uh, over. Yeah, no, you're you're fine. <laughs> Dune having just won uh, without a director nomination, even rarer, which happens here. We we don't have to talk about Dune. Dune is a whole other conversation that is not for this podcast, but for other podcasts, I'm sure. Uh, also in this lineup, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. What do you th- what What are your thoughts on that movie? I know that's a little bit of a polarizing one. I really like it, but I know some people aren't as affected by its flashiness yeah i i feel like i can't really elaborate because i only watched it once and i remember it being you know the use of a better term very artsy a lot of it went over my head um is it paraplegic gentleman yes he uh i I don't actually remember like a stroke or something a stroke yeah but he Comes, um, uh, yeah, he had, he had a stroke and was he uses he yeah. loses use of his um, arms. Is it Javier Bardem? Uh, uh, no, that's uh, that's a different movie. That's uh, the Sea Inside or something. This is it's uh, Matthew Amalric, who uh, you recognize him if you see him. He's got big old bug eyes, French guy. He's in the Grand Budapest Hotel for a little bit. Yes. Yeah, he's um, in Quantum of Solace, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, yeah, I um, think he's very good. Yeah. I've, I really like that movie. Um, I, get, I get why it can be a bit much for people. I get, I like, that's the other thing about this movie too. This movie, I'm not there, is very up its own ass, is very, uh, you know, like, cool. like cool. very self- uh, you know, aggr- aggrandizing, but you know, it's supposed to be like that is the the point that it's coming yeah. getting across. It it wouldn't work if it was a more generous, you know, uh, yeah. uh, uh, self-effacing movie. Like it, it, if it's not exactly the type of movie that it is, I don't think it works nearly as well. And I think that's kind of also true of Diving Bell. Like it is a very you know, look at me, look what I can do type movie but that helps it. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, if anyone ever says that, like, I'm not, yeah, that's why I think so many people were turned off. Yeah, it, it might have done well for the critics because critics, you know, watch X amount of movies. But I think for maybe a casual film goer who may listen to Bob Dylan, may only listen to a few of his songs, they would have seen it as totally pretentious. I mean, the film opens with, like, that autopsy anyone who's watching it just going yeah it's going to be about Kate Blanchett and Bob Dylan they're watching an autopsy and I think Ben Wishaw is narrating it and he says something like um 
you know, a song is like a naked person or a song is like a, a song is something that walks by itself. And yeah. Whoever's uh, watching it yeah. is probably the, is, the, the person that's watching it is just going like, this is going to be a fucking wank fest. Yeah. And it is. And it's it's yeah, it is. Yeah. He was a jerk. Is a jerk. Was a jerk. But it's. Yeah. It's it. That is, yeah. The point of the movie. Uh, uh, also in this fi- in this editing field, you have There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. They're again, they're both very well edited movies. It is no surprise that they're there. Very deserving nominations. They're also the best picture front runners. It is understandable why they're there. Uh, and then also in this editing field, I haven't seen it, so I, I can't speak to it. It's a movie that I know is very polarizing. Uh, and doesn't have the best reputation. It is Into the Wild. You haven't seen Into the Wild, okay. I haven't just because, I mean, I've read the book. I liked the book. I don't know if I can do Sean Penn directing Into the Wild. I've I've kind of stayed away for it for that reason. Yeah. I, 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 it just seems like knowing everything I know about Sean Penn's personality, uh, and everything that everyone has told me about that movie being up its own ass, I don't know if I could, I just don't know if I could sit through it. Yeah, it's funny. Like you would know, of course, what the story is about. Um, And I'm trying to think of actually what the editing would be like because it's been a while since I've seen it. But I think me, like a lot of people my age, would have gone through like the Tumblr era. And for me, what I like most about the film is... I don't care who judges me. Like I, I like Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder. It's yeah. the soundtrack. The, the, what, the, original, yeah. the original soundtrack by Eddie Vedder. I mean, I still listen to it to this day. Um, Big Hard Sun, Society. It's, um, it's gorgeous. And yeah. as you said, like, I'm not surprised it's nominated. Like you said, Catherine Keener was nominated for other awards and she's fine. But yeah. I think that... Um, Emily Hirsch is, it's probably his best role that he's done. I mean, I can take him or leave him as an actor. And Sean Penn, I definitely do not agree with him as a human being. That goes yeah. without saying. But um, yeah. he, yeah, he can, yeah, he made a good film in 2007. Not a brilliant film, but a good yeah. film. And it's, I think it stood the test of time. I need to double check on this because so like going into this ceremony or to this nominations morning yeah. uh, from what I've read and heard people say is that like into the wild was expected to be like a top contender in picture director, actors, a supporting actress, adapted screenplay, score, song, all this stuff. Like it is, it is like potent. It has a very high, nomination ceiling like it could show up in any of those categories and then uh when nominations come out it gets nominated for supporting actor for for hal holbrook and editing and that's it like it gets two nominations on the back of like potentially seven eight nine nominations that it was looking at and i don't know something just went wrong maybe the academy was also fed up with sean penn but not too much because they gave him Best Actor the next year. I don't know. Maybe they just, I mean, I don't know what happened there, but this editing nomination is the reason I can't talk about Into the Wild on the show, which is a shame. I mean, I don't want to have to watch it, but it's kind of like the perfect 
otherwise it would be like the perfect movie for me to talk about like what went wrong why did it only get hell holbrook but also editing so i can't talk about it um but yeah i mean yeah and it's have, yeah it's surprising as well sorry it's surprising as well that um yeah, as I said before, like Eddie Vedder um, composed all this music for it. Again, it goes with the biopic with, um, you know, I'm Not There. There might not have been any original songs, but I'm Not There was only released for it. But I think that, um, have you seen Once? I believe Once I have. was the winner. Yes. It wins. Yes, like, That's such a good win. It was a very, okay, like I think out of, I think out of all the films, um, it was so deserving. I it think. really is, yeah. It was extremely deserving. That was a film that needed a spotlight and people might not talk about it to this day. For me, I'm pretty sure, like, I'm not there into the wild. I saw none of these films at the cinema. I saw once at the cinema. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, I I don't blame you. I, I only watched it for the first yeah. time a few years ago. And, yeah, I, I it, it is, you know... It's a it's a sweet little movie, and the song that won, the Falling Slowly, is beautiful. Yeah. It is one of the best compositions that has ever won yeah. in that category. Like that is a top tier yes. winner. Um, yeah. And so yeah, just all these films that sort of um, it's not the I don't know. I think Into the Wild for me at least because yeah, music is so important. I think it really would have suffered without the soundtrack, and maybe it would suffer even further if you're not a fan of grunge, if you're not a fan of Pearl Jam. Yeah, I, I'm, I am. I know. I, yeah, I like Eddie better. I think he's a good... I just know that I've, I just know that I've been listening to um, Ed, uh, Pearl Jam recently. I think I went and saw Studio 666 and I sort of started listening to a lot of grunge again. And my housemate, I was listening to it and she's going, what? The, like, that is, that's a violation. Like, <laughs> friendship terminated. And I'm just like... And I'm just like, you can never, so apparently it's not for everybody, but I think the Into the Wild soundtrack is, yeah, it's undeniable. So without that, it might've suffered, the film might've suffered. Yeah. Still strange that, yeah, a best original song, I reckon, because these days it's like, if you make a song for a James Bond film, no shade to Sam Smith, Billie Eilish and Phineas, um, you will get a nomination you'll more likely win yeah whereas yeah this is a it's an interesting original song lineup it's falling slowly ends up winning uh a song called raise it up from august rush which oh i can't even talk about that film and then uh yeah oh wait can't even talk in a good way or a bad way bad way it's okay. so cheesy. It's a film I swore I'd never watch again. It's okay. beyond cheese. I might have to watch it because I think Robin Williams is in it. I'm pretty oh, sure. Uh, I think he's like a homeless kind of guy. Yeah, looks like it. He's on the he's on the cast <laughs> list. Uh, so it's those two, it and then yeah, and then John, yeah, three songs from Enchanted get nominated. Uh, mm. So you you could have taken one of those out for Eddie Vedder. And you could have, like, technically put in I'm Not There. I mean, it's a very... Yeah, oh, they're, they're strict about those rules. Like, the, the song from Moulin Rouge didn't get nominated, like, wasn't eligible because they wrote it for Romeo and Juliet and didn't record it until Moulin Rouge. So, like, it wasn't... Cool. Yeah, they're, they're very strict about those rules, which, whatever. Um, we talked about the cinematography a bit, and, like, 
this is a this is an unimpeachable best cinematography lineup. The winner, uh, Robert Ellswit for There Will Be Blood, beautiful movie. You know, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. But then the other four are also gorgeous, beautifully shot movies. Roger Deakins gets nominated twice for No Country for Old Men and The Assassination of Jesse James. Uh, Atonement gets a nomination uh, for Seamus McGarvey. And then John S. Kaminsky for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Like, all five of those movies are visually gorgeous and also use the framing and the, the colors and everything to very, very distinct looks that, you know, yeah. work for, like, they work within the text of the movie beyond just hey, it looks good. It's like, I wouldn't take out any of those for I'm Not There. For as much as I think the mm-hmm. attention to visual detail is really stunning in this, I don't think it would have even deserved a nomination over any of those. No, no, totally. I'm very, like, I just think that I'm Not There's legacy should have been confirmed with a Kate Blanchett win. Yes. Whether, it was, whether it was tainted by um she i forget the year but i have a feeling it was 2004 and i only remember because it might have been the first film that i ever fell asleep in the cinema with because it's so bloody long um it's the aviator it is long yeah yeah i didn't fall asleep when she was on screen because she was captivating like this Catherine. she was incredible but i think maybe i mean i don't know how the oscars work but maybe they're reluctant to award you know someone yeah haphazardly close and i just think yeah that she only won three years previously or two years previously they just thought no no, no like tilda swinton not yeah. a petty win but just um or not a pitiful win but uh, even even when i said before like that maybe she was the third choice i think that uh even atonement was yeah yeah and Again, that is a film that is, I'm not romance, you know, sentimentality is like my least favourite of, of film genres. Uh, Atonement is a film I'm not rushing to see anytime soon. That is, that movie will fuck you up. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it will. Lying and the, and the effects and the consequences of a, of a lie. Um, it is devastating. And I just think that she was 13 or her character was 13 Tilda might be pushed down to number four, you know. It's, yeah. it, I'm sorry. You're, no, you're fine. It, uh, it's a strong, like, everyone here is good. Even Ruby D with her six minutes is... Everyone is good. Everyone yeah. is strong. My goodness. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's just relativity of, like, who who's doing the most, who's doing the most interesting things. Um, we can talk about the sort of Kate Blanchett Oscar history that she has overall, which it's an interesting one. She... She gets her first nomination for Elizabeth in 1998, loses to Gwyneth Paltrow for Shakespeare in Love. It's a very sort of contentious win. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, even at the time, were pulling hard for Kate to win. Um, and then in the years after that, it takes a while for her to get her second nomination. Like she's in Talented Mr. Ripley the next year, doesn't get nominated. She does a bunch of stuff in the early 2000s that like don't, they don't amount to anything. They don't like the gift and Veronica Guerin and uh, bandits and all these movies that might as well not exist nowadays, but were, you know, Kate in another flashy role that 
maybe maybe this will be it for Kate, and it's not. And then, no, maybe it'll be this one, and it's not. Also, in all this time, she's in the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, and those are, you know, they're rightfully huge with the Oscars, but she was never going to get a nomination for any of those. And then well, the there's Avi- only one, Yeah, there's only one person that did, I mean. Yeah, I McKellen, think it's just, the only... Yeah, yeah, and I think it just served her so well. Um, yeah, it's so interesting to look at her career overall because she's really involved with um, the theatre in Australia, like, and she's a real patron for, like, our film festivals here. But I just know that um, so many, you know, English and Australian and New Zealand actors were cast for Lord of the Rings. Literally, though, like reading the, uh, literally, though, reading the books, it's like no one else could have been Galadriel. No one else. Oh, yeah. No one else. No one else has the grace, the class. Like these are all very basic adjectives, but no one else but Kate Blanchett. And yeah, she just has that quality about her. Does anyone hate her? Like, I'm sorry, just putting it out there. Does does anyone like? No, I, I don't think anyone so. Not appreciate her. I so, yeah, I I I think she's just a class act that everyone respects. Like everyone baseline has a level of respect for Kate Blanchett. That you know, yeah, I, yeah. Even if there are individual performances of hers that people don't like, like I know some people that don't necessarily like her in Blue Jasmine. But, like, I don't think they dislike Kate as an actress. Um, no. But then, so, The Aviator is only her second nomination. But already at that point, it feels like it's Kate Blanchett's time. We need to give her this win. And she kind of sweeps the season uh, and wins for that, for her role as Catherine Hepburn, uh, who I talked about last week on the show. Uh, that was fun. Um, that was and a then, one. Yes. And then... Uh, Two years later, she gets nominated for Notes on a Scandal, which is another great performance. Uh, another uh, playing a, a very bad person in that movie, but she plays it so well. It's, it's again, very layered, very, very intricate of what she's doing in that movie. Uh, and then this is the, the year after that. Uh, but we can't forget, we haven't mentioned it at all, but this isn't the only Oscar nomination that she gets in 2007. Because she's also nominated in Best Actress for Elizabeth the Golden Age. Which, I mean, kind of by default, her worst nomination, but also just generally. Her only, like, not great one. Like, all all of her other... She has, what, seven nominations? So the other six are all fantastic? Uh, yeah. Hard to pick a favorite. And that's what we... And that's what was so, I think, disappointing, I mean, about her losing Best Supporting Actress was just the Elizabeth Golden Age. I, I don't think I've even seen it all because it's you not don't a have very to. good movie. It's not. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's, yeah, it's not brilliant at all. And it's no shade to Kate. You know, she's done the fourth Indiana Jones film. Which oh, is God, funny. I forgot she was in that. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but I'm like, it's it's a pretty ugly movie. I feel sorry for whoever, you know, watches that movie as an introduction to Indiana Jones because... I'm sure they're out there. Oh, God, I'm sure they are as well. But, um, yeah, I just saw that uh, that year at the Oscars, it was just, yeah, okay, well, sure. You know, she's up for two Oscars. Um, but the Best Actress category, no, that's a... Yeah. 
Are they filling in? Are they filling in nominations? Yeah. She's a shoe in for sporting, but it's just Elizabeth Golden Age, really. I was... I I don't know. I I don't I don't know what happened there. Um, mm. But then her next nomination after that is for Blue Jasmine, and she wins again in lead. Uh, and like it makes like she makes sense as the kind of person that would already have two Oscars at that point in her career, like. And it makes sense now at this point. Like, it is not that far-fetched to believe that someday she may win a third. Like, she makes complete sense as someone that would have three Oscars. Uh, And it could happen. And then uh, also her other nomination, uh, Todd Haynes' Carol, which another great nomination, another one that would have been... She's not my personal winner of that lineup, just because that's also a very strong lineup, but she is fantastic in it. And it is another movie that could have been many more, it could have gotten many more nominations than the ones it did. Uh, Yeah, great career for her. She is, uh, she took the record this year uh, for the, she's the actress in the most Best Picture nominated films. Uh, She's in nine. So it's Elizabeth, The Three Lord of the Ringses, The Aviator, uh, I'm trying to go in order, but I'm oh Babel, which yeah, she's in. Um, yeah. I'm only forgetting one of them because I don't want to jump to this year, but I can't remember what the other one is because this year she was in Don't Look Up and Nightmare Alley. Uh, and then there's another one that she's in that I'm just I'm not gonna remember it. I'm gonna look this up. Okay, give me a second. I will cut around this in the edit. But the other best picture nom... Oh, no, I got it. It's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Which, of course. Yeah. The other, yeah, the Brad Pitt collaboration. That's bizarre. And that was around 2009? 2008. So it's the year after the year we're talking about. And she very well could have been nominated for that. And that was, I know in the conversation at the very least. Uh, Wasn't Tilda Swinton in that film as well? Ooh. She might be. Bizarre. I don't remember. I, I think don't, she I don't is. Know. That's plausible. And like with all that, there's yeah. also Carol, which came very close to a Best Picture nomination and didn't happen. And uh, Blue Jasmine, which very well could have happened. And I don't know, Notes on a Scandal could have happened. I'm Not There could have happened. All these other movies that she's been nominated for. Talented Mr. Ripley, too, could have been a Best Picture nomination that year and would have been deserving. Like, she does good work in good movies that the, that the Academy watches. And so it, it's no surprise that she's in that many Best Picture nominees and that she has th- that many nominations and that it doesn't really seem like it's going to stop anytime soon. Like, she seems like she's going to be one of those people that's getting nominated well into the later stage of her career. Yeah, I mean, the it might be a bit of a stretch, but I just think we're witnessing it. I mean, she played Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Is she the Catherine Hepburn of her time? She, like, I mean, if there is a Catherine Hepburn of this generation, it's probably her. Like, I don't, like, the people yeah, that ascribe yeah. that to other actresses, they usually just go for, like, oh, who's the big star? Who's, like, the one that, you know, fits some of the... Catherine Hepburn mold, but not all of the 
the things that you really need to, you know, those are big shoes to fill. You can't just ascribe that to anyone. But I think, you know, she has what it takes to be a Catherine Hepburn type. There's a reason she won an Oscar for playing her. There's a reason that performance gets at the nuances of Kate. I mean, Kate as Kate, that even other people doing Catherine Hepburn imitations and uh, like realizations don't really get at. Like there, there is, there's something there. There is, she is the successor if anyone is. Um, what else? There was something else I was going to say. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, some, some of the movies that we mentioned, like I said, there are five movies I'm going to be talking about for this show. But when you look at the list on Wikipedia, where it has the section under the nominees of movies that got multiple nominations, uh, and it has them you know, listed by how many nominations they got. There are one, two, three, four, five, six other movies that got acting nominations and one other nomination. So like, if any of those six had missed out on their other nomination, this could have been a year where I, was, where I would get to talk about like 11 different movies, potentially, because American Gangster only gets in for uh, production design. Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford only gets in for cinematography. Away from her gets screenplay. Elizabeth the Golden Age gets costumes. Into the Wild gets editing. And The Savages also gets screenplay. And like this, was, this is a year where of the 20 acting nominations, there are a total of 17 movies because uh, Michael Clayton is the only movie that got more than one acting nomination, which... Uh, I don't know. It's just a weird year where they were giving a lot of movies well, attention that they wouldn't, that they didn't give. They wanted to share the love. And as we said, like 2007, it was, I think, yeah, just an insane year for film. I mean, don't quote me, but um, just thinking of maybe there was a little bit of, uh, like the American productions, of course, like, I, I forgot about the assassination of, um, uh, Robert Ford, but No Country for Old Men, and of course, There Will Be Blood. When you look at films of, you know, films of the 21st century, those are the ones, not even 2007, not even the 2000s, films of the 21st century, those are the ones that are listed. And um, apart from, oh, no, no, well, two of the actors, they, they won Oscars for it, but I'm pretty sure yeah, All, two yeah. of the one. And All four of them were not American. Yeah. Oh, Europeans. Yeah, Tilda, Daniel Day-Lewis, Marion Cotillard, and Javier Bardem. And even if, say, Kate Blanchett hadn't have won, um, say if Kate had won or um, Ronan had won, it still would have been a you know a non-American sweep. No offense. Yeah. Yeah. That that Which is, is refreshing. I think refreshing it's, for yeah. two thousand seven. I think it's only the second time ever where none of the acting winners were born in America. That's insane. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that it's only happened twice. Yeah, twice ever uh, in almost 100 years that no American won an acting Oscar. They are, the, uh, apparently, we like them homegrown is, is what we know about the Oscars. Not in, not in 2007. Not in 2007. No. Yeah. Um, any of these other categories, I'm kind of surprised that like, even among those other critics prizes that I mentioned that this movie didn't get 
anything for its screenplay. Just because, like, I mean, yeah, just like, even if you're not necessarily in love with the dialogue, uh, it's still, and the category is best original screenplay. It doesn't get more original than this. Uh, this it is, so clever. it is, and to be able to take a true story of the true life of one man and break it down into these very, very you know, academic but still, uh, you know, available for discussion and for dissection. Like it's breaking them down into very different but still very accessible, relatable versions of the story where you can make the connections yourself. It is a screenplay that trusts its audience to do the heavy lifting about the metaphors and the references it's making. And, you know, not everything, like, I don't know, Ratatouille. I know what you're, yeah. No, no, I know what you're trying to say. And I just think as, as someone who, yeah, like has really loved Bob Dylan for you know, several decades now, there was, the dialogue was real. There were hints of his lyrics, like sort of peppered throughout. It was never dominating the script. I'm trying to think of examples, but it wasn't like, you know, I, I think there might've been one example where it was just like a woman. It was just said yeah. sort of out of the book, but it, but it worked with the script. It was just these cheeky, like subtle little hints. These yeah. Dylanisms, Lynchian, Lynchian, <laughs> Lynchians, Dylanisms, yeah. There's a reason. And yeah, as far as original screenplay, I mean, you'd be pretty hard pressed to find something as original as this. Yeah. Where we are yeah. concentrating, like the conversations between these different characters. I mean, um, I think some of the most affecting is when Woody Guthrie's having conversations with one of the families that takes him in and the mother, you know, chastises him for, you know, boy, like, why don't you, you know, write songs about your own time? Yeah. And just the way he speaks, it's like he's not speaking. He's, he, um, he claims that he's 11 years old, but really, is he? Is he a, you know, is he a, an older bloke in a younger boy's skin? Later on, he's entertaining some other folks singing songs. I just think, yeah, the screenplay is wild. It is. How it it differentiates from one scene to the next from these characters, like all the Bob Dylans. That's another thing. Like people, it's not like the Bob Dylans are going to interact with each other. Some people, some people might think that, you know, the Bob Dylans might all be like chucked in the same scene together and they might have like a Mexican standoff or something. That never happens. It's just. That should have happened. That would have been fun. It should. Well, they all got shot at the, they all got shot at the beginning, but. um, That's true. That could have been wild, but. Nah, it's just, yeah, original screenplay, it was a real bummer because I'm sure Todd, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but did he get recognised for Adapted for Carol? Uh, I know Carol got an Adapted nomination. I don't remember if he was the credited screenwriter on that. Now I want to check. You know what I mean? Like the film got yeah, credited. Yeah. At least the, the film got credited. Yes, it, it got a nomination for screenplay. And I know, again, Far From Heaven is a screenplay nomination and I can't remember if he's a credited writer on that. Let me check on that. Who, who wrote far from heaven? Was it him? Was it his Wikipedia going to load written by Todd Haynes? So yeah, Todd Haynes at least uh, has an Oscar nomination for writing at some point in his career. 
if not two. Uh, I I could check on Carol, but I I don't want my I just know my computer is not going to load in time, and it's going to be a lot of dead air to cut around. I didn't want. I thought you were going to say you didn't want your heart broken. I'm like, yeah, fair enough. The highway robbery of Carol. Yes, we uh, we hate to see it, indeed. Yeah. Um. Anything else about the Oscars, the 80th Academy Awards? this movie or do we want to move into our final segment here um i think i've said my piece but yeah, yeah we've been um, lo- like our last episode we are nearing on the three hour mark and it doesn't feel like it like it feels like we just started yeah. this is it's a breeze I've, bar- I've barely looked at my notes this is fantastic yeah um it, it no goes, yeah. really like yeah like i said before i just think um yeah, whether the Academy, like, has some sort of uh, formula that they need to adhere to where, yeah, shit, like, Kate won an Oscar for Catherine Hepburn. She can't win for several years. Um, Tilda Swinton is, you know, she's a first-time nominee. This is a pretty heavy-hitting role. Let's give it to her when, yeah, truly, I think, yeah, it was such a strong... that I don't think 2007 whoever's listening what we've taken away from this because i knew that it was a strong year in the back of my head it was an astoundingly strong year yeah so many films as i said like they're not just the best films of 2007 they're not just the best films of the decade they are the best films of the 21st century which we've almost clocked up a quarter of so yeah Yeah. i'm not there there's it, it it stands with the best and i think that yeah, it was deserving of maybe several more nominations because of its originality. Yeah, absolutely. And be- before we do get into the segment of other nominations, I do want to mention, I forgot to write this down or mention it earlier, but uh, Bob Dylan also has an Oscar uh, for Best Original Song for Wonder Boys, which uh, the song was uh, yeah. Times Have Changed, or Things Have Changed, uh, which... It's a pretty good song. It's nothing like 60s Dylan song. It's very fast-paced. Uh, it's a good song, though. And I rewatched the clip of him performing and then winning the Oscar. Uh, and it was done via uh, satellite. He, he was not there at the ceremony because he was doing a tour in Australia, funnily enough. Uh, so there's like a video call of him. He does the performance. He has his backing band and he does the whole thing. And then Jennifer Lopez presents and he uh, accepts, gives a, a, he gives a very Bob Dylan speech uh, accepting. And it's just weird to see him on this like giant screen in the middle of the stage. Uh, But I do want to point out, there's a point in the clip, like uh, it mostly shows him on the screen. Sometimes it'll cut to like other people associated with Wonder Boys. Like it cuts to uh, Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones or it cuts to Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen in the audience. And, you know, they're, you know, grooving along to the music. And at one point, it, there's like a very, very tight close-up on Danny DeVito with sunglasses eating like a carrot or something. I don't know why, but there's like just a five-second shot in the middle of Danny DeVito nice. in the audience. It's great. Go seek out the clip on YouTube if you want to see whatever that was. I don't know what – I like it's – it's, but it's great. It's great. Uh, and it's a great acceptance speech from him. Uh, it's a good win. It's a good, a good song. And 
I mean, it makes sense. Uh, I don't know. It's just cool that Bob Dylan has an Oscar on top of everything else in his long, illustrious career. Uh, but yes, uh, if, if that's that, let's move on to the final segment. So in your, uh, your world, your own Oscars, where you get to pick all the nominees and winners and everything, what nominations would you have given I'm Not There? Well, definitely best supporting actress. I, um, this was still just drug my memory. This was still when there was only five films up yeah. for best picture. Yeah. But if you want to expand yours. Yeah. yeah. If you want to have a top 10, uh, I, I grant you that privilege from, from today's, <laughs> you know, looking back, whatever, whatever you want to pick. Yeah, I think I would have, um, yeah, I don't have to go ham with my nominations, but I'd definitely give it best picture and best original screenplay, I think. Um, probably best sound as well. I, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just think, uh, for me, one of the most important parts, and, it, and it's connected with Kate's more sort of important induction, even though we see her at the beginning of the film, it's when it is at the... Um, New England Folk and Jazz Festival, uh, there's a heartbeat. I don't know if you remember, it's like this really intense, intense blur. It's this really, yeah, just solid heartbeat. It's just, um, you know, permeating throughout. And I think Arthur's sort of giving a bit of the narration overhead. You don't exactly know that it's the lead up to the, um, to the music festival. It's just... You know, you see cars, you see just this heartbeat. It could be anybody setting up anything. Yeah. So the sound design, the sound design in that, it's so careful. And I'm not entirely sure, of course, what um, won and what got nominated in its place. But for a film about Bob Dylan and sound, yeah, it was, yeah. That's a good call. That's a really good call. Um, I agree. This would... This would be a, a top ten picture for me of the year. I don't, I, I don't know about Todd Haynes and director. I'd have to look more extensively, yeah. but it's, it's still strong work from him. It is, it's not not nomination worthy. It's just again, very strong year for movies. So if it doesn't make the cut there, that's not a slight against Todd Haynes. Obviously, Kate Blanchett, winner and supporting actress, goes without saying. Original screenplay, editing, I think. Editing would be a very deserving nomination here. Um, and again, I, I might have to look at the year at large, but Marcus Carl Franklin is very good. And he would at least make a, he would be a strong contender for a long list for supporting actor if he doesn't end up getting the nomination. I, I'd still heavily consider him. I think he's, he's doing some really great work here. So yeah, I think that'll do it for this conversation. We're, we're clocking in just under three hours, which is, you know, about as good as we did last time. Uh, yeah, thank you again for coming on. This was a great conversation, as you can tell by the fact that we just spent three hours talking and it didn't, it just flew by. Like, you. uh, you're always thank welcome you. to come back on. This was, this was really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, where, can, <laughs> where can people find you? What do you have uh, to plug? Yeah, sure. It might not be. I mean, it's probably villainous that she didn't win the award, but, you know, say <laughs> la be. Um, I'm, I'm on Insta, cinematic underscore villainy, talking shit. I try to post every day, so have fun. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, go give her a follow. And you can find this show on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. That'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Up and down the black I'd ask him what the matter was But I know that he don't talk And the ladies treat me kindly And they furnish me with tape But deep inside my heart I know I can't escape Oh, mama Can this really be the end To be stuck inside a mobile With the Memphis Blues again